As the 27th UN Climate Change Conference closes, India is bragging. It's installed a record volume of solar power in 2022 in an attempt to wean itself off coal. The Climate Summit wrap-up coming up on this Monday, November 21st. You're listening to WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, Russia is hammering Ukraine with missile attacks, many aimed at electricity stations. Ukraine is shooting down many of the attacks, but it says it needs more help from the U.S. and NATO. An integrated air defense system, an integrated air and missile defense system is what is necessary as Ukraine repels Russian aerial attacks. Also, the progressive DA movement survived the midterms, but attacks by Republican candidates at the state level, but it's having trouble expanding its appeal beyond liberal enclaves. These stories and the numbers from Wall Street and the forecast are coming up. It's 401. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. The Colorado Springs community has yet to hear if authorities plan to formally pursue hate crimes charges or their equivalent against the alleged gunman behind Saturday night's mass shooting at an LGBTQ nightclub. Five people were killed, 25 others were injured at Club Q before patrons subdued the shooter. Police detained 22-year-old Anderson Lee Aldrich, who also sustained injuries. Separately, New York is ramping up security after authorities foiled a possible attack against synagogues or Jewish centers in New York City over the weekend. MTA chief Daniel Lieber says two men have been arrested. In light of this incident and the attack in Colorado Springs on the LGBTQ nightclub, the governor has directed our state police, who are represented here today, to increase surveillance and protection for communities like the Jewish community, that are at risk of hate crimes. Lieber announcing ramped up security heading into the holidays. It's 20 years this week since Congress authorized the creation of the Department of Homeland Security. The DHS emerged in the wake of the 9-11 terrorist attacks on the United States. The aim was to guard the country from future terrorism from overseas, but NPR's Odette Youssef says these days the threats are much closer to home. There have been huge shifts in the threat landscape, namely an elevated threat now from domestic actors, um, specifically, you know, violent white supremacists and anti-government and militia-aligned extremists. Um, These often act alone. Um, They can easily access weapons. Um, And today's DHS is coming under fire for not doing all that it can to counter that new iteration of the threat. NPR's Odette Youssef reporting. Georgia's attorney general is appealing a court order that allowed counties to offer Saturday early voting this weekend before the Senate runoff election next month. Georgia voters are deciding between Democratic Senator Raphael Warnock and Republican Herschel Walker, a former football star. Sam Greenglass of member station WABE has more. After a judge's ruling late Friday, some of Georgia's most populous counties quickly added one day of Saturday early voting this weekend. Now the state has asked for an emergency stay to halt Saturday voting, saying in part that it's too close to the election to add dates. Some counties say that taking it away now will confuse voters even more. The back and forth stems from a provision in Georgia election code that the state says prevents Saturday voting in the days surrounding a state holiday. The Warnock campaign and other Democratic organizations sued, arguing that the rule applies to primaries and general elections, not runoffs. For NPR News, I'm Sam Greenglass in Atlanta. 
The Nasdaq closes down more than 1 percent. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. A criminal investigation is underway in Hingham after one person was killed and more than a dozen were injured in a crash at the Derby Street shops in the community. WBUR's Fausto Menard has the latest. Investigators say around 10.45 this morning, an SUV crashed through the front window of the Apple store. People were injured both inside and outside the building. Dr. William Tollefson is the Director of Emergency Medical Services at South Shore Health, where the bulk of the patients were being treated. The injuries were somewhat diverse, ranging from some pretty serious head trauma to lower extremity trauma. Hospital officials say several patients have life-threatening or limb-threatening injuries. The driver of the SUV was not among those initially taken to the hospital. Police are questioning that person. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Fausto Menard. A Reading police officer has been acquitted on all charges stemming from the fatal shooting of an unarmed man in 2018. Eric Drowski shot 43-year-old Alan Greeno twice in a junkyard near his Main Street apartment. Several officers were there to arrest the man after he'd had a dispute with his roommate the night before. Officer Drowski pulled the trigger after Greeno refused to show his hands and repeatedly challenged the officer to shoot him. Drowski's defense argued he did what any officer would do in that situation. Drowski's been on unpaid leave since his indictment in September 2020. Ahead of Black Friday and the holiday shopping surge, Massachusetts Senators Ed Markey and Elizabeth Warren are renewing calls for the U.S. Postal Service to further electrify its mail delivery fleet. Markey, Warren, and other U.S. lawmakers sent a letter to Postmaster General Louis DeJoy today. It encourages him to use funds from the Inflation Reduction Act to dramatically increase vehicle electrification. In the forecast, cold wind from today doesn't let up any tonight. Could have clouds moving in, dissipating by dawn. Overnight lows right about freezing. Tomorrow should rise to the mid-40s. Winds pulling back. Sunshine sticking around for another day. Wednesday could be sunny and milder. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BetterHelp, connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and relationships. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com public. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. The accused gunman who opened fire on a queer nightclub in Colorado Springs over the weekend is facing murder and hate crimes charges, according to various news outlets. While we're still learning about his motivations, this attack did not happen in a vacuum. Over the last year, the U.S. has seen waves of legislation against LGBTQ people. Armed extremists have protested pride events. Politicians have described queer people as groomers and their families as criminals. I talked about it earlier today with Liz Smith, who works with a local organization that's been on the front lines of these fights. Inside Out Youth Services provides resources for queer young people in Colorado Springs. And I started by asking her what the last couple days have been like for her and those who rely on her organization. It has been um, shocking, uh, sadly not surprising. Um, We understand that the rhetoric um, against our community has been ramping up in recent years, months, weeks. And though we're reeling that it happened uh, here in our community, I think we've all been so afraid for such a long time. Um, And this is just a confirmation of worst fears, what hate looks like when it's taken to violence and taken into our communities. Tell me more about that shocking but not surprising feeling, because many people will say there's a difference between rhetoric and actions and 
passing a law is not the same as picking up a gun and firing it. So why were you not surprised by this? Well, in short, because our community faces so much backlash and we know the direct connection between uh, public attitudes about who we are and violence against us. We've seen hate crimes on the rise. Uh, last year was the deadliest year on record for transgender folks who were taken by violence. And I think all of us as LGBTQ folks living our day-to-day -day lives are aware of the dangers that come from being our authentic selves. And this is a direct result of, of the rhetoric that has excused hate. And these are national trends, but Colorado Springs brings a specific context to this. Your group has described Colorado Springs as having a reputation as a city of hate. You grew up there. Tell us where that reputation came from. Yeah, so in 1992, that was actually two years after Inside Out Youth Services was founded, uh, Colorado passed Amendment 2, which essentially made it uh, illegal to include LGBTQ folks in anti-discrimination protections. The nexus of Amendment 2, where most of the supporters and advocates came from, was Colorado Springs. And we have spent, you know, the last however many years, decades, trying to change not only the reputation, but also the reality of it. Because the reality is, this was not always an accepting and loving community, and you could not always be safely out here. And our reputation has changed, and the reality of it has changed, and we are so much more open and beautiful and loving than we've ever been in my memory of this city. However, uh, just because we have like robust anti-discrimination protections now does not mean that we're protected from discrimination. It just means we have recourse when discrimination happens. And it does still happen. And um, this is an example of when it happens in the worst possible way. Your organization works specifically with queer youth, and we know that LGBTQ young people experience higher rates of homelessness, of self-harm, of substance abuse. So when you layer this threat of physical violence on top of all of that, what do you expect this is going to mean for the population of young people that your organization serves? Our young people are already traumatized, not only because of the pandemic that's taken three years of their lives, not only because they're growing up, you know, diverse and strange and different and beautiful in a world that doesn't accept them for who they are, but because they don't feel safe anywhere. And um, our job as an organization that serves them is to create those safe spaces for them and to hold those spaces for them and with them. And to see the fear in the aftermath of this and the realization that even a place that is built for and by people like them, that that isn't safe, that's heartbreaking uh, because these young people are so brave and powerful and resilient and they shouldn't have to be. And now they are terrified. And as the adults who love and care for them, we're terrified too. So what can you actually say to them when they come to you with these difficult questions with these fears, with this trauma, and I'm sure you want to give them a sense of security and safety, but the reality is different. It's powerful, I think, for us as adults and for them as youth to understand that we're all grieving and hurting and afraid. But because we're all grieving and hurting and afraid, it means we're together in this and we're not alone. The solutions to these problems are not within reach, 
Um, they are not easy, but I think they feel a lot uh, closer when we're together. Can you also tell us about the role that Club Q specifically played within your community? Yeah, Club Q has been around for a long time, uh, I believe 21 years, and uh, it is a staple of the Springs community. Uh, despite our reputation as a city, we actually used to have um, one of the biggest queer nightclubs in Colorado that was Hide and Seek. And after Hide and Seek closed down, Club Q was kind of the, the last bastion uh, here in the Pikes Peak region. And of course, resources have come and gone and spaces have come and gone, but Club Q is just kind of always there. And I think you kind of take that for granted when you live in a place long enough um, that it has been there and always will be. Liz Smith is with Inside Out Youth Services in Colorado Springs. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. There's a movement that made it through this year's midterm elections despite political attacks. That's the push to support prosecutors who call themselves progressive and try to reduce incarceration by prosecuting fewer people. Many Republican candidates had blamed progressive prosecutors for rising crime, but as NPR's Martin Costi reports, the movement mostly held its ground. It's a bright morning in downtown Seattle, a couple of days after the election, and a man squats on the sidewalk outside the county courthouse to smoke a crushed pill off a strip of tinfoil. The fact that he can do this here without fear of prosecution is due in part to policies pioneered by the man whose office is up on the fourth floor, the county prosecuting attorney, Dan Satterberg. Fundamentally, the power that a prosecutor has to make a difference is in prosecutorial discretion. The discretion that we inherently have as separately elected executive branch agencies with finite resources, we can decide what our priorities are. And his priorities do not include charging people for drug possession, something Satterberg sees as doing more harm than good. Washington state courts and the legislature have followed his lead on this in the last few years, and he says now, even if he wanted to prosecute low-level offenders, the post-pandemic surge in violent crime has made that impractical. I'm here to tell you the court is full. If we were ever a path to treatment, we're not now. That goes for people with drug addictions, that goes for people who've just fallen into the wrong crowd or need a little bit of a kick in the butt toward a more positive outcome in their life. He knows people are sometimes frustrated by the disorder they see in the streets, but he says you can't blame social problems on the prosecutor. You need to look at the whole community for solutions. It's an attitude that voters here continue to endorse. Satterberg is retiring, but another progressive prosecutor from his staff has just been elected to succeed him. What we saw in 2022 were communities doubling down on the desire for change. Miriam Krinsky runs Fair and Just Prosecution. It's a kind of national club for DAs who identify with the progressive prosecutor philosophy. After this election, that club has grown to about 28 members. Leaders who ran on an agenda of wanting to right-size the criminal legal system, of wanting to avoid criminalizing people who are suffering. I'd be misleading you if I didn't say that we were, uh, you know, a little disappointed. Jason Johnson is president of the Law Enforcement Legal Defense Fund, a group opposed to the progressive prosecutors. He acknowledges their ability to get reelected by liberal voters in big cities. 
But he sees some hope for his side in the fact that Republican Lee Zeldin came close to winning the governor's race in New York with a campaign promise to fire the progressive DA in Manhattan. Although he didn't prevail, I think there probably is a message there that in, in many parts of New York that people would like to see more of a traditional approach to criminal justice. And the progressive prosecutors did see some setbacks in 2022, chief among them the successful recall of San Francisco's DA Chesa Boudin in June. They've also had trouble expanding beyond big cities or other pockets of liberal voters. In Massachusetts, Plymouth County, a progressive challenger failed to unseat longtime DA Tim Cruz. Cruz says his voters are not interested in what he calls turnstile justice. It's just really dangerous. Uh, you know, you have to hold people accountable. Still, even traditional DAs like Cruz have come to share some of this movement's aims. I am not uh, a progressive DA, but I think that I am progressive. Don't we really all want the same thing? Don't we want to have a just society? Don't we want to make sure that people are held accountable when they do something, they hurt somebody? But at the same time, how do you make sure that the mistakes that they've made don't parlay into something bigger than what they originally were? And how can you help those kids stay out of the system? Beyond political labels, there has been a growing willingness by prosecutors of all political stripes to back the broader goal of reducing America's incarceration rate. And incarceration numbers have been slowly falling. But in Seattle, Satterberg is already thinking about the next round of elections, saying the continuing re-election of these progressive prosecutors is what will determine whether this is a moment or a movement. Martin Costi, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on WBUR's All Things Considered moves to address the problem of parents who are behaving badly at their kids' soccer games. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by H&H, the Handel and Haydn Society, performing Handel's Messiah with its Hallelujah Chorus, Friday through Sunday at Symphony Hall, handelandhaydn.org, and Volante Farms with Fraser and Balsam Fir Trees, Wreaths, Poinsettias, and Food for Your Holiday Table at their Needham Farm Stand, hours and menus at volantefarms.com. Stocks begin the holiday week with a dip. The Dow lost a little over a tenth of a percent, 45 points. It closed at 33,700. S&P was down about four-tenths of a percent to finish at 39.50. The Nasdaq was down more than one percent. It ended the session today at 11,025. Massachusetts Biotechnology Council is helping to launch a workforce training center at the former Boston Globe building in Dorchester. The Mass Bio Training Center will offer three short-term certificate training programs for free designed to help people launch careers in the life sciences. The center will provide a stipend to offset trainees' lost income. The facility is expected to open by the end of the year. It's 419. I'm Susan Stamberg. When the time comes for a new car, consider donating your old one to us. We will turn it into your favorite programs. Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts, helping you find a MedEx Medicare supplemental plan that works for you. Visit bluecrossma.com go. And Gore Place, where kids can create 19th century inspired crafts at the Crafting Extravaganza on this Saturday. Info and reservations at goreplace.org. 
Some clouds for the first part of the night tonight. They should clear out, though, by morning. Strong winds tonight, about 32 degrees for a low. Tomorrow and Wednesday should bring more sunshine. Highs tomorrow in the mid-40s, then reaching the upper 40s on Wednesday. Sunshine could stretch into the holiday on Thursday. 37 degrees now in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BetterHelp. Connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and relationships. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com public. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at AlignProbiotics.com. It's All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. The COP27 Climate Summit wrapped up on Sunday with a historic deal to compensate developing countries hit hard by a warming planet. One recipient of that aid will be India, which is scrambling for more renewable energy sources. This year, the country installed a record amount of solar power, as NPR's Lauren Freyer reports. How many stories is this building? This is 27. 27. So we're climbing up a ladder now, up onto the top of the roof. Quite a view. Wow, you can see the mountains. So that is what is known as the Thane Creek. Body of water in the distance. It's not just the mountains that are impressive, though. It's the view before them of thousands of rooftop solar panels. So you see most of the buildings, you can see that that building has solar. So Just a few years ago, these weren't here. No, not at all. Chinmay Divekar is a solar entrepreneur who's part of this change. His business partner is Jai Vyas, an accountant who in his 60s has become a solar evangelist. Before our interview, he sent me a pamphlet he wrote entitled, Sunny Makes Money. When I wake up in the morning and uh, I have committed myself to speak about solar to at least three people every day. You are one of them today. Until recently, though, it was a tough sell. Despite having lots of tropical sunshine, about 70% of India's electricity comes from coal. Renewables mostly mean massive solar plants in the deserts of Rajasthan or Gujarat. Or farmers using a panel or two to run irrigation pumps in rural areas where the grid is shaky. But solar never really caught on in urban India. The government subsidizes electricity, so it's cheaper here than in the West. And most solar panels are imported and expensive, not worth it for any single household. But that's changing, with record government investment in renewables this year, says energy economist Vibhuti Garg. Players who want to set up solar rooftop can register themselves. They'll get government subsidies. Government subsidies for domestic solar panel production. That's what neighboring China did to make its own solar industry so successful. Jai and Shinmei used to import rather expensive solar panels from Singapore or Germany. Now they're using Indian ones. So these are Indian made? Uh, these are Indian made uh, panels. Uh, these are, this is our latest installation. It says Renusis India Private Jai shows me his latest installation atop a big condo complex on Mumbai's northeast outskirts. The building manager is Swati Nevki. As the prices of panels fell, her building's residents took a gamble on solar. Brookhill Society invested uh, 1.4 million rupees. To, that's to buy the, the panels themselves and install them. Panels, entire project. In year 2020, we have got uh, half a million recovery savings. 
So that's within less than three years, the investment is, investment is recovered. They recouped their investment with lower energy bills. But there's a catch. These new domestic panels aren't totally domestic, Shinmei says. So basically the silicon that goes inside, that's still in, imported from China. And that is subject to price fluctuation, so many other factors. Some components still need to be imported. Correct. But now there are huge manufacturing capacities being set up by, I don't know if you know these two groups, Adani and Ambani. And Who uh, hasn't heard <laughs> those two names yeah, yeah. in India? Yeah. Two of India's biggest conglomerates are getting government help to onshore the entire Indian solar panel supply chain. And if that happens, prices may come down even more. In the next 10 years, economists say solar may become India's cheapest energy source. Lauren Freyer, NPR News, on a rooftop in Mumbai. When the stakes are high in sports, so is the volume and passion in the stands. But some say fans of kids' sports have lost perspective. NPR's Elizabeth Blair reports. Parents and coaches yell at the refs. They yell at the kids. You gotta see the offsides. And they yell at each other. What kinds of adult misbehaviors have you seen on the sidelines in youth soccer? Well, first off, let's not call them adults, okay? Brian Barlow is a longtime collegiate soccer referee who started the Facebook page Offside, where you can find dozens of videos of adults losing it at youth sports games. An adult is rational. An adult is responsible. An adult understands that it's no longer their moment, it's their child's moment. With some 95,000 followers, Offside is like a cone of shame for adults who are abusive to refs. Sideline behavior has gotten so bad, there's a national referee shortage. They're making 25 to 45 to $50 for 50 minutes to an hour and 10 minute match. And in that time, the coaches and the parents are over the top disrespectful. So we never get a chance to really mold these officials because they're like, I don't want that 50 bucks. I'll go flip a burger. And for kids, it's mortifying. 15-year-old Joshua Nimley has been playing competitive soccer in Washington, D.C. since he was six years old. Yeah, I've had my fair share of incidents. I remember, like, there was one time I was, like, eight, and, like, parents, they almost had a fight because, like, they didn't agree with the decision. And it was just, it was just BS. It shouldn't be that serious. It's crazy. And what were the players doing? What were you in there? We were just all surprised because, like, we weren't arguing about it like as kids, so why, why are adults doing this? You know? One reason, too much focus on winning, says Sky Eddy, a former professional soccer player. She's also a parent and a coach. Sometimes parents care too much about the result, and so they then get too involved in what's happening and don't let the game sort of belong to the child, if you will. To help parents behave better during games, Eddie designed a 15-minute video course. But here's the thing. She doesn't focus on hostile behavior, but something that's much more prevalent. Distracting behavior is communicating to a player while they're in the middle of trying to perform a task or while they're in the middle of trying to think and be aware and make a decision on the field. In the video, she asks parents to look at a slide with the names of different colors. She asks you to say out loud, not the words as written, but the colors they're written in. It's tricky because the colors don't match the words. Eddie coaches you while you're reading it. I tried it. Begin. Blue, Keep red, going. purple, blue, faster, yellow, blue. We think we're helping oftentimes, but in fact, we're distracting players from learning. 
But keeping quiet is challenging for parents. There's another exercise called silent soccer, where adults agree not to say anything during their kid's game. D.C. parent Petrina Whitney has done it. That was really, really hard. Really hard. We did it probably a couple weeks ago, probably four weeks ago, and it was really hard, but we did it. These efforts do seem to be working. Eddie says of the 9,000 people who've taken her course, 60% say their sideline behavior is better. Most excitingly to me, over 40% of parents who take the course say that their relationship with their child improved as a result of taking just this 15 minute course where we're finally, you know, stepping in and educating parents and giving them some moments to reflect and some guidance about how children learn and how sport is learned. The kids don't want to hear their parents. They don't want to be coached by their parents. They want to please their parents. Brian Barlow. And the most powerful thing that you can say to your young athlete at the end of the game, it isn't what you did right, what you did wrong, how you're going to play better next game. It's just to walk to the car, get in the car and say, hey, I loved watching you play today. Elizabeth Blair, NPR News. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR coming up, rethinking using sarcasm. Tonight should be freezing, 32 degrees. Next few days are looking sunny and dry. Tomorrow in the mid-40s, Wednesday could flirt with 50. Then Thanksgiving Thursday should be back to about 46 degrees. It's 430. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the MBTA, helping tens of thousands of people reach their destinations every day. The MBTA is hiring across multiple departments. The T offers competitive salaries, solid benefits, and established paths for growth. For more information and to apply today, visit mbta.com careers. And LabShares Newton, freeing up biotechs to focus on difficult diseases at state-of-the-art BL2 labs with a range of services and amenities, labshares.com. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. If WBUR is indispensable in your daily life, make it a priority in your year-end giving. A monthly gift will keep you grounded in facts and new ideas. As our thanks, get a year of The New Yorker on your digital device and in your mailbox at a 40% savings. It's a limited time offer, so get in on it while you can at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. Parts of liberated Ukraine may be too war-damaged to inhabit, and the World Health Organization warns millions in Ukraine face a life-threatening winter. Ukrainian authorities have begun evacuating civilians from parts of Kherson and Mykolaiv due to water, heat, and power outages. At the same time, concerns are growing in Ukraine about the safety of the Zaporizhia power plant. NPR's Greg Myrie has more from Kyiv. There was some damage uh, to buildings and facilities there. This is a huge sprawling plant, the biggest nuclear plant in Europe, six nuclear reactors. A dozen or so shells hit in the space of an hour. Not clear who's responsible, both sides blaming the other. The IAEA wants to get in. Uh, they're not there yet, as far as we know. Uh, Russia took over the plant in March, but it's Ukrainians who are still working and managing the plant on the inside. 
NPR's Greg Myrie in Kiev. Thanksgiving travel has already started. The good news is airline travel is on track to be less nerve-jangling than last year. NPR's David Shaper reports. Nick Callio of the industry group Airlines for America says the Thanksgiving travel rush is already underway and will continue until the end of the month, as many Americans are leaving for the holiday earlier and staying longer. It's going to be very busy. We're going to be flying over 2 million people a day. But despite the rush, Calio says travelers should see relatively few delays and cancellations. Airlines are in a much better place now than they were earlier in the summer. First of all, we started hiring aggressively a year ago to get people back on the job. And he says the airlines have trimmed their schedules to be more in line with their staffing realities. But he admits bad weather still could disrupt flights. David Shaper, NPR News. The Dow closed down 45 at 33,700. The Nasdaq off 121. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. One person is dead and at least 16 people were taken to hospitals after a man drove his SUV into an Apple store in Hingham this morning. Police are investigating and are questioning the driver. Within the past hour, investigators identified the man who died as 65-year-old Kevin Bradley of New Jersey. Plymouth County DA Tim Cruz says the crash happened at a store that's typically very busy, especially during the holiday week. When you're just going there to buy a phone or get something fixed or whatever it may be, it's absolutely unthinkable, it's absolutely tragic, and we're going to make sure that, like I said, we're going to go slow and steady with this and get the information as we get it. Cruz says the injured include people who are inside and outside the store. A jury has acquitted a Reading police officer in the fatal shooting of a man in 2018. WBR's Deborah Becker reports on today's verdict. Jurors deliberated for less than a day before finding Officer Eric Drowski not guilty in the shooting of 43-year-old Alan Greeno. When police arrived at Greeno's apartment to investigate a domestic assault, they say Greeno fled to a nearby junkyard. Officer Drowski found him hunched over in a car and said Greeno refused to show his hands and told Drowski to shoot him. Prosecutors argued that Greeno had no weapon and did not threaten the officer. Drowski's been on unpaid leave since he was indicted two years ago. He was the first Massachusetts police officer criminally charged with an on-duty shooting in more than three decades. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Deborah Becker. People interested in teaching at child care centers in Boston will soon be able to access free education and training programs. As WBR's Kara Young reports, the financial supports are part of a new program aimed at easing the industry's labor shortage. The program will be funded by a $7 million allocation of the American Rescue Plan. It will be administered to four institutions in Boston, including colleges, who will provide scholarships and financial assistance to around 800 interested students. City Councilor Kenzie Bach says the one-time funding is an important investment. That will pay dividends not just with those 800 folks, but the idea that other folks around them will look at them and say, oh, that looks like a stable opportunity. Like, that looks like something that's actually going to um, compensate me appropriately. Students who access the free training and credentials will be required to work in early education in the city for two to three years. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Carrie Young. 37 degrees now in Boston. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Catchlight Painting, committed to meticulous interior and exterior painting, including new and historic properties. See their portfolio at catchlightpainting.com. 
in the forecast. A cold wind from today doesn't let up tonight. Could have clouds move in, but then they should dissipate by dawn. Overnight lows about freezing. Tomorrow rising to the mid-40s. Wind should pull back. Sun should stick around for the day. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next. The finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Z-Quill Pure Z's Gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. Russia is hammering Ukraine with missile attacks, many aimed at electricity stations. And Ukraine is shooting down many of these missile strikes with its own air defenses. Here are Ukrainians witnessing and recording such a moment just last week. But Ukraine says it still needs more help from the U.S. and NATO. And to talk about this, we're joined by NPR's Greg Myrie in Kiev and NPR's Pentagon correspondent Tom Bowman here in Washington. Welcome to you both. Good to be with you. Hi, Wana. Greg, let's start with you. So a lot of these Russian missiles are being knocked out by Ukrainian air defenses. Roughly how many are we talking about here? The Ukrainians say they're destroying around two-thirds or even three-quarters of these incoming Russian missiles. Uh, Russia fired 96 cruise missiles in a huge attack last Tuesday. Ukraine said it shot down 75 of them. The Ukrainians have been giving similar figures with these swarms of Russian drones that have been coming in. Now, we can't confirm the numbers, but we are seeing the videos, as we, we just heard there, and it does seem plausible. Uh, Nonetheless, Ukraine's air defenses are limited, and it's geared toward key government and military sites. So if Russia does fire dozens of missiles at once at a large number of targets nationwide, then some are going to get through. And Greg, what are Ukrainian officials telling you? Are they running low on these air defense missiles? Well, they're very tight-lipped when it comes to their air defenses. But here's what we know. When the war began, Ukraine relied on these old Soviet-era systems known as the S-300. Now, it's worked well, so well that Russian manned planes were being shot down at a very high rate. And Russia, for the last several months, has rarely been sending manned aircraft into Ukrainian airspace. But Ukraine is believed to be running low on the missiles needed for this S-300 system, and it's hard to find new ammunition. These missiles are not made in the West. Now, I spoke about this with Colonel Yuri Enot. He's the spokesman for Ukraine's Air Force. Ukraine does not have enough firepower to be fully protected from the sky. That is why we ask the whole world to help Ukraine by any means. So, Tom, to that point, what have the United States and NATO offered so far? Well, one of the big ones that arrived recently is called NASAMS, which can track dozens of targets and is the same system that protects the White House. That's been very effective. Also, new systems are coming in from Sweden, Germany, and just over the weekend, Great Britain offered some anti-aircraft guns to target drones. There's even talk of providing American-made Patriot missile defense systems among the world's best. Uh, They're used by many Western nations and highly sought after, but it's uncertain if any country would be willing to loan a Patriot system to Ukraine. Now, last week, General Mark Milley, the top Pentagon officer, said air defense was at the top of the list. Let's listen. As Ukraine continues to fight 
air defense capabilities are becoming critical for their future success. And a significant portion of today's conversations in today's meeting with almost 50 countries focused on how we can provide the right mix of air defense systems. Tom, we heard Millie mention 50 countries there. Who are they and what can we expect to see from them? Well, it's called the Contact Group, and they met last week. And I'm told many of them promised more air defense missiles as well as systems. And there's a plan to beef up air defenses over the coming months into the spring. Now, you'll never be able to cover the entire country, but many critical areas like cities, troop concentrations, and so forth. Another concern is what General Milley said about preventing the Russians from achieving air superiority meaning the freedom to fly anywhere in the skies over Ukraine and attack targets. They still don't have that capability because of these air defenses. And early in the war, Russia lost a couple of hundred aircraft flying over Ukraine. Now uh, they're flying over a safe distance from Ukraine, over Belarus, over the Black Sea, or the Russian mainland. And the U.S. and NATO want to make sure Uh, through uh, even stronger air defenses, that no Russian pilot will feel safe flying into Ukraine again. And Greg, back to you in Kyiv. One key goal Ukraine has is to defend its electricity grid. From your vantage point, how is it coping? Well, right now we're just locked in this cycle. A Russian attack knocks out power. Ukraine quickly repairs it, usually restoring power in less than 24 hours. But each time this happens, it chips away at Ukraine's overall capacity. So right now, residents here in Kyiv or other cities might typically expect a scheduled power outage of four hours or so a day. But energy companies are warning this could become days at a time. Thanks to you both. You're welcome. My pleasure. That's NPR's Greg Myrie in Kiev and Tom Bowman in Washington. It's time for My Unsung Hero, a series from Hidden Brain that shares the stories of people who left a lasting impression on someone else. Rich Addison was once a shy little kid who sometimes felt picked on. But once he got to high school, things changed. He developed a sarcastic sense of humor as a defense mechanism. But the sense of humor I developed was kind of biting and kind of critical. So now... My hero is about to come into the story. And this was my friend Holly. And one day, Holly and I were talking, and she said to me, you know, Rich, sometimes you really hurt people's feelings. And at first, I was just shocked. I said to myself, that can't be true. I I was entertaining, I made people laugh, I liked people, these were my friends. I didn't want to hurt them. I couldn't be hurting them. But I kept thinking about what Holly said, and I kept turning it over in my mind. And eventually, I realized that she was absolutely right. And I started paying attention to how my humor was affecting other people. And I changed it. It didn't happen overnight, but um, I changed, and I wanted to be more compassionate towards people, and I wanted to have a different kind of relationship with them than always keeping them off balance. So after I went on to become a clinical psychologist, And in my role, I try to help other people have generous interpretations about themselves and others. And I've also made a career out of training physicians to do that. And I really am 
so grateful that I made that shift in my life. And I really owe it to Holly. And I think back to that time so many years ago and when she cared enough to say something to me, something that probably wasn't easy to say, but it was something that changed the direction of my life in a very significant and very gratifying way. So thank you, Holly. You're my unsung hero. Rich Addison lives in Santa Rosa, California. He was recently able to reconnect with Holly and tell her how much her comment meant to him some 50 years later. Share the story of your unsung hero by recording a voice memo on your phone and emailing it to myunsunghero at hiddenbrain.org. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Over the last few years, Georgia has been on the front lines of election conspiracies and sweeping voting law changes. The state is once again a national political battleground with outsized attention. Even though this month's elections are being audited as next month's Senate runoff approaches, election officials are feeling optimistic about the future. Georgia Public Broadcasting Stephen Fowler reports. It's the voting equivalent of watching paint dry, but a risk-limiting audit last week is exactly the type of calm and uneventful process that Georgia elections used to be known for. My name is Gabriel Sterling. I am the Chief Operating Officer for Secretary Raffensperger and the Secretary of State's office. And as part of his continuing process to make elections boring again, we are here today to kick off our audit. The most exciting part? When people rolled 10-sided Dungeons and Dragons dice to seed an algorithm. No whammies, no whammies. One. The number is one. That algorithm then told counties what random batches of ballots to count. Then teams of two got to work tallying those ballots to ensure electronic counters properly work in the midterms. For the first time in a while, Georgia has seen an election that lived up to the boring anti-hype. No candidate cried fraud, early voting records were shattered with few reported issues, and elections officials were able to do their jobs without threats, harassment, or concerns about safety. We're getting close to the light at the end of the tunnel. Um, I still told staff, you know, we have a very strong staff. I'm very proud of our department. We did an awesome job, but we still know that the runoff is, is it's right upon us. That's Nadine Williams, the interim elections director of Fulton County, Georgia's most populous and most scrutinized county. But we're going to be able to go ahead and make sure everything is efficient, everything is functioning, and we're very confident that we'll have a very successful runoff and be able to finally take a breather at the end of this year. The last two years have been difficult in Georgia. The state implemented the largest ever rollout of a new voting system. The coronavirus pandemic saw fewer polling places and people to work them, while election offices were overwhelmed with mail-in ballots. 2020's presidential race was counted three separate times in as many weeks, and lies about the outcome and voting process led to threats, harassment, and a sweeping election law change. But this election saw none of that, much to local elections officials' relief. I can say that it's like an exhale, an exhale moment where you're like, okay. Amika Pitts is the Henry County Elections Director, and I caught her in a brief moment of downtime after finishing her audit and before runoff preparation becomes all-consuming. Me being in elections as long as I have, 
last two years did feel kind of uncomfortable. And now it's kind of feeling like how I used to with coming from the general going into the runoff. In other words, pretty uneventful, like dealing with questions about registration issues and candidates instead of mistrust and accusations of fraud. And not always feel like you're watching your back or, or having to always be like on the defense when you know what you know. You're the expertise in it and have so many people to challenge you that you're not. So election workers in Georgia are feeling good for now, about how things are going, but once the final votes have been counted in the December 6th runoff, there's always more work to do and the next election to prepare for. For NPR News, I'm Stephen Fowler in McDonough, Georgia. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on WBUR, Lacoste and Mortar put a traditional Thanksgiving dinner on the table this year. Coming up, we have budget-friendly substitutes. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bass, Berry & Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at BassBerry.com. Bruins have got a tough stretch of games coming up starting tonight as they visit the Tampa Bay Lightning, the three-time defending Eastern Conference champs, 7 o'clock game time. Eastern Conference rivals the Boston Celtics and Chicago Bulls play tonight in Chicago. The Celts take the court as the hottest team in the NBA, having won their last nine games. And it wasn't a win, but the U.S. men's soccer team did not lose today in its World Cup opener in Qatar. After leading one to nothing in halftime, the U.S. held on for a 1-1 draw against Wales. This is the U.S.'s first appearance in the World Cup since 2014. They play Friday against England. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 4.50. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's The Nutcracker. Beloved characters return to delight all ages this holiday season. Opening this Friday. Tickets at bostonballet.org and Sunbug Solar, helping to grow renewable energy in Massachusetts since 2009. To learn about solar energy employment opportunities, visit sunbugsolar.com. Last year at this time, retailers had high demand, but stock was in short supply. This year, we're in a situation where they've purchased so much to try to avoid any type of risk situation that now they have all this excessive inventory on their books. I'm Kimberly Atkins-Store, the inventory glut and what it means for your holiday shopping. That's On Point tonight at 7 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. You might already be noticing one addition to your holiday menu, inflation. The cost of Thanksgiving dinner is up nearly 40% from two years ago, according to the annual Farm Bureau survey. That got NPR's business desk thinking there has to be some kind of solution or substitution. NPR's Stacey Vanek-Smith has the story. This year, the cost of a Thanksgiving meal for 10 is nearly $80, just for the most basic ingredients. But here at the NPR Business Desk, we thought, inflation can't win Thanksgiving. So a group of us got together, took on four of the most iconic dishes, mashed potatoes, cranberry sauce, turkey with stuffing, pumpkin pie, and we set out to find a substitute dish that could stand in for the classic 
and would get that dish back to what it cost on Thanksgiving of 2020, before inflation took off. A substitutions giving, if you will. Well, I guess we should say, like, welcome to substitutions giving. We're Everybody came here. to try the dishes. Reporters, editors, interns. Oh, hey! Business Desk Energy Correspondent Camila Dominoski went first. She took on mashed potatoes. Potatoes have gone up in price by more than 20%. So is the price of the milk you whip into them. Camila's solution? Beans. These are mashed butter beans. For y'all who aren't from the South, that's just lima beans. Pound for pound, Camila's lima beans cost roughly the same as russets. But a little bit of lima goes a long way. Like one pound of potatoes makes two servings. One pound of beans makes 13 servings. Are you serious? You come out on top, like in a big way, when you go for the beans. And the mashed beans look a lot better than I thought they were going to look. They look so similar to potatoes. Yeah, they're a little gray. Give it a shot. Give it a shot before you hate on it. Our intern, Mary Yang, volunteered to taste. I think the texture throws me off. I don't know. What we do know, Camila's beans cost about $5.25, about half the cost of russet potatoes. Next up, cranberry sauce. So here at NPR, there is something of an institution around cranberry sauce. We were all way too scared to mess with it, so we passed it off to our editor, Uri Berliner. My ingredient was cranberry sauce, but not just any cranberry sauce. Susan Stamberg's, Mama Stamberg's cranberry relish, which is an NPR tradition that goes back many years. It's like a thing. It's a big thing. It's a big thing. I mean, it's pretty iconic. Apparently, they serve it in the NPR cafeteria every year. The ingredients are weird. They are raw cranberries, an onion, sour cream, sugar, and horseradish. And it's the color of Pepto-Bismol. I've never tried this relish, but correspondent Scott Horsley has. It, she acknowledges, I, I know this doesn't sound tasty. Right. Is it tasty? That's, but, well, that's it. It's a, some people, it, <laughs> opinion, opinions I, differ. I've, I've never heard Scott Horsley stumble <laughs> that way in my life. Something. <laughs> what will really have you stumbling, though, is the price. Sour cream is up more than 20% over last year. Horseradish prices up more than 40%. Uri had a couple substitutions in mind. Called up Susan Stamberg and said, Would you be willing, considering there's been inflation, to, to substitute for any of the ingredients in Mama Stamberg's cranberry relish? Well, listen, never. Of course not. I mean, there's a, these are written in, in, in blood, sweat, and tears, I must say. Don't mess with Mama Stamberg's. Not to be deterred, Uri tried again. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. But now I feel like the ogre. I feel like saying, bah, humbug. And of course, it would be the wrong holiday. So there was just no way I was going to try and substitute for Mama Stamberg's. But it made me really nervous because, like, what was I going to do? What was I going to do? So what do you do? You go to the Internet. Type in tangy, tart, side dish, Thanksgiving, not cranberries. And the Internet came up with? Secret sauce. Apparently, it's Canadian. There's chopped pickles, mayonnaise, scallions that are cut up. There's a clove of garlic and a little bit of honey. We were skeptical, especially correspondent Alina Selyuk. You had me all the way up until the honey. Scott Horsley gallantly stepped in to try it. <laughs> what, what's the verdict, Scott? Oh, yummy. Really? Yes. Yeah. That's really good. Yeah. It tastes like a spread on a uh, sandwich in a New Jersey deli. Oh, yeah. That's what it tastes yeah. like. 
Okay, this is like a hit. And the price? Nearly 40% cheaper than the cranberry relish. So two substitutions down, two to go. Next up, the turkey. Almost $30 this year for a 16-pound turkey. It is the most expensive thing on the Thanksgiving table. I took it on, and I felt a lot of pressure. It's so iconic, and, you know, finding any meat that's going to feed 10 people for less than 18 bucks is not easy. Chicken, ground beef, fish, even spam, they've all skyrocketed in price. They're too expensive. Pork prices, though, they've risen a little bit less. So I started looking around. Pork shoulder, pork butt, hot dogs, nothing quite fit the bill. And then I found it. And it is... Bacon. Oh. Bacon's giving. For three family-sized packages of bacon, just $12. And you know, a little bit of bacon goes a long way. Now, instead of stuffing, which was up almost 70% over last year, I opted for tomatoes. Their price hasn't really risen in the last year. And you can use them to make a Thanksgiving BLT. You know, I think like half of America would be ecstatic if there were BLTs instead of turkeys. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Of course, no Thanksgiving meal can be considered complete without pumpkin pie. But pumpkin pie mix alone is up almost 20% in price. Luckily, pie master Scott Horsley had a plan. I knew I wanted to do something with sweet potatoes. So while russet potatoes have gotten a lot more expensive this year, sweet potatoes have not. To get the skinny, Scott called up Michelle Granger. She is the executive director of the Sweet Potato Commission in North Carolina. When we started harvesting, we realized that our yield was higher than anticipated. Some operations weren't prepared for the number of bins they were going to need to put the sweet potatoes in. So there's actually a bit of a glut of sweet potatoes right now, and you can find some real discounts. At my local market, sweet potatoes were about a third the price of canned pumpkin. So I decided to make the sweet potato pie instead of a pumpkin pie. And and, uh, while the sweet potatoes are a bargain, I got to tell you, the spices are are pretty expensive. It's got nutmeg, cinnamon, allspice, a little bit of molasses. Wait, this sounds not that cheap. Well, but you're saving so much money on the sweet potatoes. You know, you can splurge on all those other ingredients. And so we did it. Substitutions giving 2022. We made a Thanksgiving meal that cost what a traditional meal cost back in 2020. The menu? Mashed butter beans, Canadian secret sauce, bacon, tomatoes, and sweet potato pie. Sweet potato pie is really, truly superior. Yep. It It is superior. Mm -hmm. Uh, Who's nice? Of course, sitting around, eating and laughing with wonderful people who spend way too much time thinking about the economy, there is no substitute for that. Scott, I gotta tell you, this is a real GDP, real good dessert pie. No! (laughs) Stacey Vanek-Smith, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from LifeLock by Norton, reminding consumers that sensitive information sent online may not always be secure. Learn more at lifelock.com NPR. And from Clarivate, creators of the Ideas to Innovation podcast, an exploration into solutions designed to address the world's most complex problems at clarivate.com podcasts. And from Mattress Firm, dedicated to providing personalized service with the goal of helping people sleep well so they can live well. 
customers can shop their range of products in-store or online at mattressfirm.com. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bill Blumenreich Presents, featuring Trevor Noah, Off the Record, coming this April. Tickets and information at thewilbur.com and chevaliertheater.com. I'm here and now host Scott Tong, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The largest freight rail union has voted to reject the contract agreement the Biden administration brokered. The two sides returned to the bargaining table, but the possibility of a rail strike remains. Our story is coming up on this Monday, November 21st. You're listening to WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, climate change has led many people from Africa to travel to Europe to seek a better life as farm workers, but they're often disappointed. I was speechless when I saw the reality here. I couldn't quite understand that the situation was so, so difficult. We'll have more from the strawberry farms of southern Spain. Police are expected to release more details about the suspected shooter and the killings at a Colorado Springs LGBTQ nightclub. And artist, writer, and photographer Patti Smith on her latest writing, A Book of Days. It's 5.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Members of the LGBTQ community and others in Colorado are remembering those killed in an attack at Club Q in Colorado Springs over the weekend. Member station KUNC, Alex Hager reports mourners want to see action from political leaders and support from allies. Speakers at the vigil in Fort Collins, about two hours north of the shooting, are calling for change to stop the violence. They characterize the killings as a sobering reminder of the dangers faced by LGBTQ people. Charlie Williamson is a Colorado State University student and leader at the school's Pride Resource Center. I mentor freshmen at CSU and high schoolers here in Fort Collins. I tell them it gets better and that there is safety in the world, but today I had to contemplate again if I was lying to them. Other speakers questioned if safe spaces in their own community could be the next to face an attack. For NPR News, I'm Alex Hager in Fort Collins, Colorado. Authorities are scheduled to hold a news conference amid reports the suspect faces murder and hate crime charges or their equivalent in connection with the shooting. The governor of Alabama is halting executions and calling for a top-to-bottom review of the state's lethal injection protocol. The announcement comes after two failed execution attempts in recent months. Mary Scott Hagen from member station WBHM has more. Alabama Governor Kay Ivey says she's committing all necessary support to figure out what's wrong with the state's execution protocol. Since September, Alabama has tried and failed to kill two men sentenced to death. In both cases, prison staff could not establish IV lines in time. Similar issues caused an hours-long delay in another execution this summer. Lawyers and advocates have long called for more transparency about the process. Prison officials have said they're following protocol and blamed legal delays. In a statement, Ivy said she's working with prison officials to, quote, ensure the state can successfully deliver justice going forward. 
For NPR News, I'm Mary Scott Hodgen in Birmingham. The U.S. says China and Russia are putting the world at risk by blocking any response to North Korea's repeated missile tests. NPR's Michelle Kellman reports on the latest Security Council meeting on the topic. North Korea has launched a record number of missiles this year. The U.S. ambassador to the U.N., Linda Thomas-Greenfield, says the latest landed just 125 miles from Japan's shoreline. For too long, the DPRK has acted with impunity. It has conducted escalatory and destabilizing ballistic missile launches without fear of a response or reprisal from this council. She says Russia and China are, in her words, enabling and emboldening North Korea by blocking any Security Council response. Both have called on the U.S. to negotiate with North Korea. The U.S. says it's open to that, but North Korea hasn't responded. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, Washington. That was down 45 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Investigators have identified the man killed in a car crash earlier today at the Derby Street shops in Hingham. 65-year-old Kevin Bradley of New Jersey was killed when an SUV crashed through the front window of the Apple store. The Plymouth County DA's office says at least 16 other people were injured. Several have life-threatening or limb-threatening injuries. The driver of the SUV has not been identified. Police are questioning him, and investigators say a criminal investigation is now underway. The Brandeis University community is grieving the death of a 25-year-old woman, Vanessa Mark. She's an undergraduate student who died when a university-contracted shuttle bus slammed into a tree near campus in Waltham Saturday night. 27 other people were injured. A vigil is planned for 7 o'clock tonight at Harlan Chapel at Brandeis. Police are investigating the crash. Massachusetts Congresswoman Ayanna Presley is calling on the Department of Justice to provide an update on what it's doing to improve safety at children's hospitals. The letter also asks for an update on its investigation into threats made against those medical facilities that have been threatened for providing gender-affirming care to patients. Boston Children's Hospital has faced multiple bomb threats this year. Presley and 33 other members of Congress sent a letter to Attorney General Merrick Garland. The letter is saying platforms such as Twitter, Facebook, and others have been slow to limit the spread of threats and misinformation related to the hospitals. With the FIFA World Cup underway in Qatar, here in Boston, feelings among soccer fans are mixed. Evan Cipriano is vice president of the local chapter of the American Outlaws. That's a U.S. soccer supporters group. Cipriano says he's excited about the U.S. men's team that's young and promising. But he says this year's tournament is overshadowed by human rights abuses by the host country, Qatar. Since day one, you've known that this tournament would not be a welcoming tournament for LGBTQ members of our groups. Um, We knew that it wouldn't be a, a welcoming tournament to women, potentially. It's really scary and really unfortunate, and it makes the whole event very conflicting. The U.S. took the field against Wales today. The game ended in a 1-1 tie. In the forecast, despite some clouds early tonight, the bulk of the night should be clear, down around freezing. Then tomorrow, sunshine returns. We could reach the mid-40s, even higher on Wednesday, approaching 50 with a good deal of sunshine. Thanksgiving Day Thursday could be back in the mid-40s with sunshine once again. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 5.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by DuckDuckGo, a company committed to making privacy online simple. DuckDuckGo's app includes a private search engine, web browser, and email protection with one download. More at DuckDuckGo.com. 
From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. The U.N. Climate Change Summit ended with a promise to help developing countries deal with the impacts of a warming planet. Many people on the front lines of climate change have decided it's not worth waiting to find out whether countries keep those promises. Some of them are leaving. We're tracing a path from Senegal to Morocco to Spain, connecting the dots between climate change, migration, and the political far right. Near the end of our journey, we arrived in southern Spain, where many people who came from sub-Saharan Africa discover the distance between their dreams of Europe and the reality. Because, you know, I don't have documents. I walk anywhere I get to walk. There are two ways of looking at the life of Hope Joseph. First, you could see her through the eyes of her family. Everyone respects me, my family now. To them, the 29-year-old is a provider, a pillar. My mother called me that, say, this is my pillar. She said, my daughter, I cannot have problem with you because you are my pillar. Her older sister says the same thing, and that's a big deal. As a younger sister, Hope is supposed to be secondary. But her whole family in Nigeria looks up to her. They depend on her, especially her 10-year-old boy. The other day, he said, why are you going to come back? I said, when I have documents, I can go for now, no. She hasn't seen any of them in years because Hope Joseph has been working in the strawberry farms of southern Spain, sending half of every euro she earns back to Nigeria. We're sitting in her makeshift home built of wooden shipping pallets wrapped in tarps to keep out the rain. This is beautiful. You have so many like, pink and blue and flowered sheets on the wall. Your that, color? This is my favorite. The blue? Yeah. Yeah, nice. <laughs> The floor is concrete. There's no electricity or plumbing. So here's the second way you could look at Hope's life. The life is very difficult. She struggles every day just to survive here. Is it difficult to be a woman here in the camp? We hear about people drinking, people violent. You can't sleep. Just yesterday, around 2 o'clock in the night, there is fire here. Everybody have to wake up and stand. They take drugs, they take smoke, they drink a lot. But I don't fight, I don't drink, I don't smoke. I look for my daily bread, that is it. Life's difficult for everyone living in this settlement, even more so for a woman on her own. She has a big dog named Guapo to keep her safe. Do you ever think life was better in Africa, I should not have left? It's not better, because I live there. It's not better. It's better here, because at least my mother will be hungry, I can feed him. But in Africa, I cannot feed anybody. But here, I can feed somebody. When you step outside of Hope's shack, you see hundreds of structures like hers. This is a village. It's a village inside of a village. Francisco Villa is with a nonprofit organization that works with the people who live here. So the population is very difficult to estimate because it fluctuates a lot. Right now we're in the planting season. He says the population could be between 200 and 800 depending on the time of year. And there are other settlements like this one across the region. Everything here hinges on the season. Strawberry farms stretch for miles in every direction. On one side of the settlement, endless rows of raised planting beds reach to the horizon. Sprinklers irrigate new seedlings. On another side of the settlement, warehouses with loading docks sit still and quiet, waiting for harvest season. When we began this journey back in Senegal, we met people who'd been to Spain and returned home. They warned young men how hard life in Europe can be. This settlement makes the point. There are piles of trash everywhere. But people living here have gotten creative. In one hut where someone hooked up a TV to a solar panel, everyone's watching a soccer game. There's an ad hoc garden just a few houses down. Just growing among the trash is a bunch of 
squash, like pumpkins, and then there's a little plot of mint where there's just tons of mint. And I guess when people eat squash, they throw the seeds there, and then people can harvest the squash when they grow. People secure their homes with padlocks on the doors. One man from Senegal has a couch in his two-bedroom structure. On the wall behind him, he's written VIP Ghetto. He left home in 2014 and spent years getting here, passing through many countries on the way. Togo. After Togo, I come in Niger. Niger, enter in Algeria, Algeria to Morocco. He asks us not to use his name because he doesn't want his family to know how he's living. They still think Spain is the promised land. If one is living in a good house, a nice house, yeah, it's okay. Uh, but if you're living in a camp or in a house like this, and then the family sees how you're living, they're going to say, well, it wasn't worth it to go to Europe in the first place. Spanish law says people are eligible for permanent residency after they've been working three years, as long as they meet certain conditions. That's more generous than the U.S. and many other countries. But the reality for guest workers in Spain is that it often takes much longer. This man's been at it for four years and still doesn't have his papers. I speak Spanish. I can write Spanish. I'm searching from with my the bosses I've worked with here to give me a contract for a year. Um, but I, I don't have it because they think if they give you a contract and you get your papers, you'll leave. And they don't want you to leave. They want you to work and continue working for them. We spoke with a farmer who leads an organization of small strawberry producers in the area, and he denied that farmers take advantage of the workers. But we also spoke with a local prosecutor who handles crimes against migrants, and he confirmed that farmers have all the leverage and some of them abuse workers. The Senegalese man in the VIP ghetto says it's just the luck of the draw. That just depends on the boss. Sometimes there's people who come after you who only work a little bit, and then they give them their papers. I work a lot, and they haven't given me the papers. Then he says unprompted, I want to see my wife, I want to start a family with her, but I can't go back because of the papers. That's why people here, you know, become crazy because they're thinking about these things all the time and they can't go. He says that's why fires break out all the time around here. Sometimes someone's careless with a propane cook stove, but often people just snap from all the stress. My mom, you know, she messaged me sometimes. She says, I really want to see you. I want to see you before I die. I want you to come back. I hope that you have your papers so you can come back. The fires and the violence have provided useful talking points for far-right politicians. We're sorry to see the situation that many migrants experience in Europe. Rafael Segovia is local president of a Spanish political party called Vox. The party offices are full of green balloons with the Vox logo. A banner on the wall lists their Agenda for Spain. It talks about fighting the globalists, defending Western values, and upholding traditional families. In Segovia's talking points, you hear some of the same phrases that like-minded politicians use all over the world. Vox, just like other political leaders around the world, such as Trump in the U.S., Orban in Hungary. We're all patriots. We are not against regulated immigration, but we are against the illegal migration we are seeing in all these countries, which the globalists support. He specifically worries that international refugee law will begin to recognize people displaced by climate change. If we hope to defend our cultural identity, 
we need to reject the idea of the climate refugee. If that notion is accepted, all these illegal migrants would have to be admitted because they would legally be considered refugees. Vox is still a minority party in Spain, but it's growing fast. And all over Europe, right-wing politicians are winning elections on similar platforms. Segovia believes that informal settlements are a threat to stability, security, and the culture of Spain. He accuses his political opponents of advocating for open borders. A young man from Senegal named Sedu Diop takes a different view. Borders are already open, he says, just not for everyone. I ask you, how could it be that you were able to travel to my country with your passport and me with my passport? I can't just go to the United States and travel with dignity. Seydou Jop runs a community center for people who live in a nearby settlement of strawberry farm workers. For a membership fee, they get access to hot showers, Wi-Fi, even legal help and Spanish language lessons. It's all paid for by the migrants themselves. People watch TV while they wait for their turn to do laundry. On this journey, we've asked dozens of migrants, what drove you to leave your home? Why did you make such a dangerous choice? Sedu Jop reframes the question. Why shouldn't anyone be able to travel for any reason or for no reason? I think that traveling is part of being free. And now that you are here, how does the reality of Spain compare to the dream that was in your heart? I was speechless when I saw the reality here. I couldn't quite understand that the situation was so, so difficult. I became an activist the moment I arrived in this country because I felt hungry in this country. I slept on the streets in this country. And this is happening in societies that are supposed to be supportive and democratic. While far-right politicians accuse immigrants of polluting Spanish culture, Sedu Jop views it differently. As he sees it, he's trying to help the country live up to its ideals. Tomorrow, our journey concludes in Madrid. We'll meet a man who grew up in a Senegalese fishing town, worked for years in Spain without papers, and is now an elected political leader, one of very few black people ever to have succeeded in modern Spanish politics. Honestly, it is a lot of pressure. That's why I have to think carefully about every single word, every step I take, because it's not just me. It's the whole community. And you can find all of the stories from this trip at npr.org slash climate migration. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Coming up on All Things Considered, the U.S. begins its World Cup competition after it missed the games last time around.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bentley University, where students learn the power of good business and how it can make the world a better place. Bentley University, a force for business, a force for good. Stocks begin the holiday week with a dip. The Dow lost a little more than one-tenth of a percent, 45 points. It closed at 33,700. S&P was down about four-tenths of a percent to finish at 39.50. The Nasdaq was down more than one percent to end the session at 11,025. Stock prices in the Boston-based online sports betting company DraftKings fell five percent today after some customers reported unauthorized withdrawals on their accounts. DraftKings tells the Boston Business Journal it's aware some customers are having, quote, irregular activity on their accounts, but there's no evidence that DraftKings was hacked. The company believes some customers may have had their log information compromised on other websites and ran into trouble because they use the same logins and password for DraftKings. The company did not say how many accounts were affected. The forecast is coming up. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Delta Dental of Massachusetts. Passionate about improving oral health across the state and reminding you that a healthy smile is a powerful thing. Visiting your dentist and taking care of your mouth could help protect your heart health and much more. Discover the connection between oral and overall health at expressyourhealthma.org. Cold out there right now. 37 degrees should dip to 32 overnight tonight. Next few days are looking sunny and dry. Tomorrow in the mid-40s, Wednesday could flirt with 50, and then Thanksgiving, about 46 degrees. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Dataiku, a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. And from Fidelity. With Fidelity Income Planning, Fidelity looks at how much clients saved, how much they'll need, and helps them build a plan for cash flow so they can go from saving to living. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. It's probably not the news the White House and a lot of folks were hoping for right before the holidays. The largest freight rail union has voted to reject a five-year contract deal. That's the deal the Biden administration pulled together back in September. It gave workers a 24 percent raise over five years and some quality of life improvements. President Biden himself had called it a win for all sides and for the U.S. economy. But it turns out that may have been premature. NPR's Andrea Shu is here with more. Hi, Andrea. Hi. So catch us up, if you can. Who are the workers who rejected this deal, and what does this no vote mean? Well, this union is called the Smart Transportation Division. They represent around 28,000 train conductors and brakemen and others who work in the rail yards. Just over half of them voted no. It was a very, very close vote. They were one of the two unions that came to Washington back in September for those marathon negotiations with the Labor Secret- Secretary, Marty Walsh. And most people thought at the time that they'd hammered out a deal with the rank and, uh, that the rank and file would accept, but it turns out they were wrong. So now it's back to the bargaining table. And actually, there are three other rail unions in the same boat who also voted down this contract. Okay, so then how close are we to a strike? Well, if any of these four unions fails to reach a deal by December 8th, workers could strike the next day on December 9th. 
that's in two and a half weeks. And I should say the railroads could also lock workers out starting then. But, you know, eight other rail unions have approved the deal. But the way it works, if one union strikes, all of the others honor the picket lines. And if that happened, tra trains would come to a halt around the country. And one, it's not just freight trains, but Amtrak trains and commuter rail systems that use the tracks owned by the freight railroads. Okay, as a train commuter, I'm thinking about this, and this is coming right mm. before the holidays, and it sounds like a recipe for disaster. Well, it would really be disastrous anytime, actually, because the supply chain is already so fragile. And think about all the stuff that's shipped by rail in this country, everything from chlorine for water treatment plants to the flour that goes into bread. You know, agribusiness, manufacturing, retail, they all rely on rail to move their goods. And last month, every industry group you can think of, from the American Bakers Association to the Pet Food Institute to the National Lumber and Building Material Dealers Association, they sent this joint letter to President Biden, Biden urging him to continue to work with both sides to get the deal ratified. Okay, so what else can the White House do here? Well, not a whole lot at this point. Today, the White House said the best option is still for the parties to resolve this themselves. But if there's no agreement by law, Congress can intervene to stop a strike, and there's some expectation that they will. And Congress could do any number of things. They could impose the contract that the unions voted down, they could impose an earlier version of the agreement, or they could extend the negotiations and leave it for the next Congress to deal with. Andrea, tell us if you can, what is the sticking point for these workers who voted no? A lot of them will say it came down to quality of life issues. One thing to understand about rail workers is that some of them have really unpredictable schedules. They're on call basically all the time. And then rail workers more broadly don't get paid sick days, the kind that you can use if you wake up with the flu or you have a sick kid at home. And on top of that, some of the railroads have really strict attendance policies. So if you miss too much work because you're sick, you can get in trouble. So the workers were hoping to get paid sick days as part of this deal, and they didn't get any. They did get some modest changes to the attendance policies. But at this point, many are just really mad at the railroads. Mm. The railroads have dramatically cut the workforce in recent years, so it's more work with fewer people. And meanwhile, the railroads have seen record profits. So some of the workers I've talked to actually say they want to see a strike. They think it'll send a strong message to the railroads and to the country. NPR's Andrea Shu, thank you. You're welcome. It was a tale of two halves today for the U.S. men's soccer team in its opener at the World Cup in Qatar. The U.S. dominated Wales for the first 45 minutes and was up 1-0 at the half, but Wales stormed back to tie it late, and that is how the game ended, a 1-1 draw. NPR's Tom Goldman was at the stadium and joins us from Doha. And Tom, let's talk first about that opening half for the Americans. What stood out to you? Ari, um... The U.S. was very disciplined, aggressive, maybe too much at times. They had seven first-half fouls and two yellow cards for rough play. But in the words of their coach, Greg Berhalter, they did not look like a team playing in its first World Cup, and it really was. This was the first time the U.S. was... Um, was playing in the World Cup since 2014. They missed the last one. And uh, the the players on this team, very young team, second youngest team in, in the tournament, um, 25 of the 26 players on the roster had never played in a World Cup. So very inexperienced, but that's what uh, Burhalter liked. He liked the way they look. And their good play in that first half paid off with a beautiful goal at around the 35 minute mark when star forward Christian Pulisic broke free with the ball um, and threaded a beautiful lead pass for another forward, Tim Weah, who flicked the ball in with his right foot. 
uh, for a 1-0 lead for the U.S. at halftime. The U.S. fans went bonkers. But it didn't last, so how did Wales come back in the second <laughs> half? Well, it, it, they kind of flipped the, the, the script. Uh, Wales became the aggressor, spent a good time of the half in, in the U.S. end, and at around the 80-minute mark um, uh, of the match, um, Wales was threatening again, and American defender Walker Zimmerman slid under Welsh, uh, under Welsh uh, superstar forward Gareth Bale and took Bale down in the penalty box that, was a, uh, that awarded uh, Bale a penalty kick and he converted, that made it one all, and then it was a frantic last few minutes as both teams um, wanted to break this tie and get the points for a win, but neither was able to. So at the World Cup, there are four teams in each group, and the top two in each group advance to the next round. What are the U.S.'s chances of advancing given today's result? Well, you know, it's, um, it's going to be tough. Uh, number one, England is the best team in this four-team group. It's England, Wales, the U.S., and Iran. And England thumped Iran 6-2 today. And the U.S. plays England next on Friday. Um, so England has three points for the win. Both Wales and the U.S. have one point, and Iran has um, zero. So at this point, it really is um, a two-way fight, maybe a three-way fight for that second spot. And you want to get to that second spot so you can move out into the, uh, into the knockout round. So it is still to be determined. That's why we have two more matches. So check in later. And there was also some controversy today involving the armbands that team captains wear. Tell us about that. A half dozen or more European club captains uh, plan on wearing rainbow-colored armbands with the word One Love written on them as a show of support for LGBTQ people. Homosexuality is illegal in Qatar, and it's been a big issue, as you probably know, leading up to this event. But FIFA made it clear to these teams that if the captains went ahead and wore this armband, FIFA would penalize them with a yellow card, which if you get another one in the group stage, you are disqualified. Teams didn't want to risk their captains being taken off the field and they pulled back. They were not happy about it. A lot of fans weren't happy about it. Um, you're hearing from fans and journalists that the captain should go ahead and take the risk because they have the power, but uh, it probably won't happen. And FIFA and the Qatari officials won this one again, sadly. It's NPR's Tom Goldman in Doha, Qatar. Thanks a lot. You're welcome, Ari. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. In the forecast, some strong gusts out there today and tonight, especially on Cape and Islands. There's a wind advisory up until 5 a.m. tomorrow for Barnstable, Dukes, Nantucket counties. Could be dangerous to be out on the water today and tonight all along the coastline. There's a gale warning that includes Cape Cod Bay up through Ipswich Bay and well north. It's 530. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Trust, a private bank offering a full suite of custom financial solutions tailored to its clients. Their team provides private banking, wealth management, and commercial and innovation banking designed to power any ambition. You can visit their offices or connect online at cambridgetrust.com slash way to wealth. Whether Trump is charged or not, a large segment of the population will think it's wrong and politically motivated. And a special counsel can't solve the problem 
at the heart of the moment, which is that you have the Justice Department under a sitting president investigating his rival for the presidency. I'm Michael Barbaro. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Tonight at 8 on WBUR. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. In Colorado Springs, a suspect in the shooting deaths of five people and dozens of injuries is expected to face charges of murder and bias-motivated crime in connection with the Saturday nightclub attack. Paolo Jalsita reports the city is in mourning. There were at least four memorial ceremonies last night and during the day. And I went to an interfaith service last night, and it was supposed to be a service in observance of Transgender Day of Remembrance to remember the countless transgender lives lost to violence. But unfortunately, the shooting changed those plans. It turned into a vigil. They were supposed to mourn the countless trans lives lost, and instead it became a day to mourn those lives lost, plus the five lives lost yesterday. Paolo Jalsita of Colorado Public Radio. More controversy at the World Cup in Qatar. Several European national soccer teams say their team captains will not wear pro-diversity armbands, fearing punishment by tournament organizers. NPR's Tom Goldman reports. A number of teams planned for their captains to wear rainbow armbands with the words one love to promote LGBTQ rights. Homosexuality is illegal in Qatar. But now the European countries have decided against it, saying FIFA, soccer's international governing body, threatened the captains with yellow cards, which increased the risk of being ejected from a match. In a statement, the European countries said they were ready to pay fines, but, quote, we cannot put our players in the situation where they might be booked or even forced to leave the field of play. A group representing fans in England and Wales blasted FIFA, saying, today we feel contempt for an organization that has shown its true values by giving the yellow card to players and the red card to Tolerance. Tom Goldman, NPR News, Doha. At the games this afternoon, a late penalty earned Wales a 1-1 draw with the U.S. Wall Street, the Dow closed down 45 points. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. A criminal investigation is underway after one person was killed and more than a dozen injured in a crash at the Apple store at the Derby Street shops in Hingham today. The victim was identified by authorities late this afternoon as 65-year-old Kevin Bradley of New Jersey. Apple says he was a professional who was on site to support recent construction at the store. WBUR's Fausto Menard has details. Investigators say around 10.45 this morning, an SUV crashed through the front window of the Apple store. People were injured both inside and outside the building. Dr. William Tollefson is the director of emergency medical services at South Shore Health, where the bulk of the patients were being treated. The injuries were somewhat diverse, ranging from some pretty serious head trauma to lower extremity trauma. Hospital officials say several patients have life-threatening or limb-threatening injuries. The driver of the SUV was not among those initially taken to the hospital. Police are questioning that person. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Fausto Menard. Massachusetts U.S. Senator Ed Markey is praising the United States' commitment to help developing countries address the financial impact of climate change. The U.S. and more than 200 other countries agreed to establish a fund to help developing nations pay for mitigation efforts for things such as rising sea levels, droughts, floods, and heat waves. The agreement was announced yesterday at the United Nations Climate Change Conference in Egypt. 
Markey is a longtime environmental advocate. He called the deal a historic step toward addressing the harms wrought by climate change on nations including Pakistan and Nepal. Search crews in northern New Hampshire are looking for a Westford, Massachusetts woman who went missing near Franconia Notch. Officials say 19-year-old Emily Satella was dropped off at a state campground yesterday morning. She had plans to hike Lafayette, Haystack, and Flume Mountains. They say she was not dressed for cold weather and that temperatures in the higher elevations yesterday were near zero, with a wind chill of nearly 30 degrees below zero. It's 535. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by The Provider Group, an insurance brokerage and benefits firm serving high-net-worth individuals and businesses, working with carriers like Safety Insurance, ProviderIG.com. Despite some early clouds tonight, the bulk of the night should be clear, down around freezing. Tomorrow, sunshine returns. We could reach the mid-40s, even higher on Wednesday, close to 50 degrees with a good share of sunshine. Thanksgiving Day Thursday could be back in the mid-40s with sunshine once again. 37 degrees now in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from BetterHelp, connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and anxiety. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com public. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. Police in Colorado Springs continue to update the public on their investigation into the shooting at Club Q, a queer nightclub where five people were killed Saturday night. A 22-year-old man is in custody, and it's unclear whether he'll be charged with a hate crime. Colorado Public Radio is following this closely for us. And joining us now is May Ortega. Hi, May. Hi, Juana. So, May, if, in fact, the the suspected shooter is charged with a hate crime or crimes, what could that mean for him? Well, at this point, there is a lot we don't know yet. So before we talk about specific charges, let's talk about what we do know. We know that police filed an arrest affidavit, but early yesterday morning, that was sealed by the courts at prosecutor's request. However, the district attorney has told CPR that no charges have been filed. The suspected shooter, though, has been arrested. The DA says they're reviewing the case, and we could potentially see formal charges in the next couple of days. And as of early this afternoon, police say the shooter was still in the hospital. Now... If the shooter is charged with multiple counts of murder, well, those charges alone could mean life in prison. So if the shooter is also charged with committing a hate crime, those charges wouldn't necessarily result in him serving additional time. Colorado's hate crime laws can add four to ten years on to sentences, though. And Colorado does not carry the death penalty, so life is the heaviest sentence possible here. Again, prosecutors prosecutors tell us no charges have been filed yet. And May, at this point, have police confirmed the names of the five people who were killed there? Right now, we only have one name confirmed, and that's Daniel Aston, who was 28. He was transgender and a bartender and performer at Club Q where the shooting happened. Police have not yet confirmed names of any of the other four victims. We can also say Colorado Springs police recently updated the number of people injured in the shooting. It's gone down from 25 to 19, and police now say a total of 17 of those 19 people were injured by gunfire. And what are police telling you about the suspected gunman's motives? 
Well, like I said before, today prosecutors sealed the affidavit for the arrest. So all we know for sure is that he is a 22-year-old man from Colorado Springs who was previously arrested by police here for calling in a bomb threat against his mother. Officials here, though, didn't explain how that was resolved. I have to imagine that the LGBTQ community there in Colorado Springs is taking this incredibly hard. It's heart-wrenching. What, what are you hearing from people there? Yeah, you're totally right. Here is 32-year-old Shanika Mosley, who we spoke to in the Club Q parking lot yesterday. She says it was one of the very few spaces where gay, lesbian, trans, and other queer people could truly feel like themselves. It hurts that we'll probably never have that experience in its full wholesomeness like ever again. They say that it takes more than one person to change things, but one person changed that literally overnight. Keep in mind, Colorado Springs is a pretty conservative city, so Club Q was an important place for LGBTQ people. It was one of the few places here where people who were still closeted to their own families would go to Club Q and feel free and safe in their skin. So this has really shaken this community hard. Colorado Public Radio's May Ortega, thank you. Thank you. Many hospitals across the country are being overwhelmed right now by a spike in cases of a viral respiratory illness. Patients are still showing up with COVID and the flu, but the spike many medical facilities are seeing is caused by a different virus known as RSV. It causes a respiratory infection that, for adults, usually means mild, cold-like symptoms, but it can cause much more serious conditions like pneumonia when it's contracted by infants and children. Seattle is one city that that's been seeing a big rise in pediatric cases of RSV. And joining us now to talk about what's happening there is Dr. Shaquita Bell. She's a pediatrician and senior medical director of Seattle Children's Odessa Brown Children's Clinic. Hi there. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. The cases of RSV that you're seeing there in Seattle, how serious are they? Unfortunately, uh, at 16 years of practicing medicine and pediatrics, this is the worst season that I have seen. Our hospitals are very busy. Our clinics are very busy. Our average phone call intake is about 30 calls a day at our clinic. And right now we're getting 100 a day. Wow. So it's definitely really bad. And we are absolutely seeing a lot of sick children in our community right now. So given that influx, that begs the question here, do you all have enough beds and staff to care for these children? It's such a great question. I think it's a complex one. We all know that the healthcare system has been taxed by the COVID uh, pandemic for the last two years. And to have this outbreak in the severe season of RSV has been very, very hard. Uh, all of our hospitals in our region are having maximum capacities. Some of our adult hospitals are taking some cases so that our children's hospital can focus on the respiratory illnesses. So Dr. Bell, how does the current situation, what you all are seeing now, compare to what is typically seen this time of the year? So normally the RSV season lasts from around October, November to April or May with the peak coming, meaning the worst or most cases coming in January or February. So if we use that logic and think that right now we're just at the beginning of the season and it's going to get worse and worse for the next couple of months, it's very concerning about the capacity of our healthcare system and specifically our pediatric healthcare system to keep up with the rate of infection. You know, I can't help but think that there's concern about RSV potentially spreading right as we're heading into the start of the holiday season, Thanksgiving just a few days away. What 
is your concern there given that backdrop? I think that we should treat it a lot like we have treated all respiratory illnesses in the last two years. We should be very cautious. If people are sick, they should stay home or they should find ways to mitigate risk like wearing masks and frequent hand washing. The unique thing about RSV is that adults generally are not very sick because most of us, the vast majority of the population has had an RSV infection by the time they're two years old. And while we don't become immune to RSV, we usually don't become as sick the older we get. Therefore, you're less likely to know that you have RSV and could give it to somebody else. So even if you just have a light cold, I would absolutely stay at home or wear a mask and make sure you're trying to keep everybody safe. You mentioned masking, and in many parts of the country, masks are not recommended in group settings like daycares and schools. So would it be your recommendation, given what you're seeing, that those kinds of places, daycares, schools, perhaps should start having kids mask up again? We know that RSV is spread through droplets, which means somebody coughing or sneezing or breathing on somebody else. But we also know that those droplets can drop and land on services and last for hours. So not only would masking help with the risks of spreading RSV, but so does hand washing and washing countertops. Now, the caveat to all of this is that the most at-risk children are children under one year of age. And unfortunately, they're not old enough to wear masks. So my advice is if you have a child or if you are a person who can wear a mask, that it would absolutely be helpful to do so in group settings, especially as we get together for the holidays. Dr. Shaquita Bell is a pediatrician and senior medical director of Seattle Children's Odessa Brown Children's Clinic. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. After seven weeks of testimony, the seditious conspiracy trial for Oath Keepers founder Stuart Rhodes and four other defendants is in the hands of the jury. They're charged with plotting to use force to try to block the transfer of power to President Joe Biden in connection with the January 6th attack on the Capitol. NPR Justice Correspondent Ryan Lucas is covering the trial. Hey, Ryan. Hey, Ari. Well, after almost two months, what did the defendants say in their closing to the jury? Well, closing arguments actually began on Friday and finally wrapped up this afternoon. Uh, And attorneys for each of the five defendants did have a chance to make uh, their final argument to the jury. And the first one to go was Rhodes' attorney, James Bright. And he began by acknowledging right off the bat that Rhodes and the other defendants said a lot of incendiary and offensive things in text messages and audio recordings, which are a key part of the government's case. But Bright said, look, venting about the election does not amount to a meeting of the minds. Spewing hatred and anger doesn't amount to a conspiracy. And he also told the jury that there have been around 50 witnesses in this trial that they've heard from, and not a single one testified that there was a plan to storm the Capitol or block the certification of the election. And so he said, if there's no plan to storm the Capitol, no plan to block Congress on January 6th, where's the conspiracy? And what about the other defendants? Their attorneys also zeroed in on that same idea, the testimony that there was no concrete plan to storm the Capitol. Uh, Some of the attorneys accused prosecutors of manipulating evidence to try to fit the government's sedition narrative. Now, all of the defendants are charged with seditious conspiracy, as well as a couple of other conspiracy counts. They also face, though, a variety of other charges, including destruction of evidence, civil disorder. And so the attorneys spent some time trying to poke holes in the government's case on those counts uh, relevant to the specific defendants. Okay, that was the defense. Let's talk about the prosecution. What did the government say in its closing to the jury? 
So the government goes first and last in closing arguments, since prosecutors bear the burden of proof. And Assistant U.S. Attorney Catherine Ricosi started for the government, and she took the jury back through the huge amount of evidence that they've seen, the inflammatory text messages and audio recordings and witness testimony. And she reminded the jury about an armed quick reaction force that the Oath Keepers had on standby on January 6th at a Virginia hotel to rush weapons into D.C. if necessary. She reminded jurors how Oath Keepers, including some of the defendants in this case, forced their way into the Capitol on January 6th. And she showed some of the incendiary statements from Rhodes and the others discussing violence and bloodshed and fighting to keep Trump in office. And then today, Prosecutor Jeff Nessler came back to that when he closed things out. He told the jury the evidence of the defendant's intent is overwhelming. It's plain as day, he said, in all of the messages that the jury has seen. He said the defendants said out loud what they wanted to accomplish. They agreed to it, and then they came to D.C. and followed up with action. And he concluded his remarks by asking the jury to uphold the Constitution that he said the defendants tried to subvert. And he said that he asked the jurors basically to find them all guilty. Do you think we're going to get a verdict before Thanksgiving? Very unlikely. Very unlikely. This is a complex case. There's a lot of evidence, multiple defendants, multiple counts. And the jury is only going to begin deliberating tomorrow, tomorrow morning through tomorrow. And then they're going to break for Thanksgiving until next week. But the important thing, uh, as the judge told the jury at the end of the day today, is the case is now finally yours uh, after all of these weeks. And this is just one small piece of the sprawling January 6th investigation, right? Absolutely. There are actually a couple of more seditious conspiracy trials that are on uh, on tap for the later this year that, you know, we will all be keeping an eye on as well. NPR's Ryan Lucas, thanks a lot. Thank you. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, artist, writer, photographer Patti Smith on her Book of Days. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software for technical computing and model-based design, accelerating the pace of discovery in engineering and science, MathWorks.com. Coming up at 7 o'clock tonight, one year ago, demand for goods at stores was high, but stock was in short supply. Now retailers are drowning in inventory. How that could affect your holiday shopping tonight on On Point at 90.9 WBUR starting at 7 o'clock. Stay informed with all that's happening in the news. Listen on the WBUR mobile app while you're working out or heading out to work. Tonight should be about as windy as today has been, falling a few degrees to freezing overnight. Tomorrow highs in the mid-40s, another sunny day. Wednesday sunny, inching up to the high 40s to about 50 degrees. Looks as if we should have a sunny and dry Thanksgiving day. This is 90.9 WBUR, 37 degrees now in the Boston area at 549. WBUR supporters include Volante Farms in Needham, full-service Christmas tree stand with hand-decorated wreaths and greens, poinsettias, and trim tree. Holiday hours at volantefarms.com. Join WBUR for a Boston holiday tradition like no other, our annual live reading of A Christmas Carol on Tuesday evening, December 20th. Your favorite WBUR voices perform the classic story live at the Omni Parker House in Boston. Proceeds benefit Rosie's Place, a sanctuary for women in need. Details at WBUR.org events. 
Come out for the season and Rosie's Place. Tickets are at wbur.org slash events. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. Hello. With that one simple word and a picture of an open hand palm side up, musician, writer, and photographer Patti Smith invites the reader into her new work, A Book of Days. It's a collection of 366 photos, some digital, some Polaroid, some old and some new. One for each day of a year, accompanied by sparse text. And as Smith writes at the end of the introduction, they are 366 ways of saying hello. And now we are going to say hello to Patty Smith. Patty, welcome to All Things Considered. Oh, thank you. I'm happy to be here. Your book is so lovely. It's elegant and really understated. And one of the things that I, I want to ask you first is, how do you want people to take this book in? Should we devour it from start to finish? Should we flip to dates that mean something to us? What do you think? Well, I think that I would never dictate how anyone um, approaches a book. Um, I just hope that uh, it will inspire people. It's it's really a book that you can do all of those things. You can look at any date. If it was me, I'd probably see what was done on my birthday, uh, which is why I actually included February 29th for those born on the leap year. But I, I think it's uh, it's a welcoming book, I think. What was it like for you making the transition from film-based physical photos to a digital medium like Instagram? Are there things that are different for you as a photographer? Well, I mean, I can't really call myself a photographer, even though I've taken many, many pictures. But uh, taking photographs with um, the Polaroid camera, you go out on your day, you have 10 shots. And so you really think about each shot that you're taking and also the old Polaroid film had quite an atmosphere, the black and white film. Yeah. And so it was more akin to art for me. And um, when it was discontinued, it took me a little while to become friendly with my phone as a camera. But when I did, a lot of the principle was the same, the immediacy. I like the immediacy of the Polaroid, and of course, we uh, see our image immediately on the cell phone, and also because if you don't get it the first time, the shot you're looking for, you, you can shoot until you get what you want. The atmosphere of the Polaroid is sacred, and it can't really match that, but it has its own positive qualities. Uh, for instance, getting the detail that I could never get with a Polaroid camera. So I've just reconciled myself to the fact and now embrace it. I'd like to ask you, if I can, about some of the individual photographs that make up the book. And if I can, I'd like to start with one of my favorites. Um, it is on January 5th, and it's this photo of a white teacup and a pair of dark sunglasses. <laughs> and the caption just says, my armor. And I'm going to be really honest, this is deeply relatable because I can almost never be found without my sunglasses. <laughs> tell me about th that photo. What were you trying to tell us there? It's too... Uh personal addictions, my dark glasses, and my coffee. Uh, but I, I think, you know, going out into the world, it's two things that make me feel ready and even cool. The dream was to have a pair of wayfarers like Bob Dylan, which I eventually achieved and wore them all through the 70s. In the simplest terms, it's two things that make me feel cool when I have to go 
out into the world. Another favorite of mine is on October 15th, 2006, marking the day the legendary New York Music Club CBGB shut down, and yours was one of the final performances there. The photo is of Kala Lilies. Can you just tell us about it? Yes. Um, my band, um, we, we performed on uh, the closing night of CBGB's. I mean, it, it was almost a typical CBGB's night. It was packed. You could smell beer and piss, and, um, and it was uh, just a sort of un, a, a beautiful sort of melancholy but unruly night. And I received the uh, calla lilies from a friend. When I looked at them at the end of the night, I realized that they would be the last flowers to be sent to CBGB's. And, you know, calla lilies, they have such a, a symbol of rebirth, of life, Easter, resurrection. And when I took the picture, I only had like two shots left in my Polaroid camera. The, the background, all the graffiti and the lilies sort of merged. But um, I wanted to remember them, the last flowers of CBGB's. In the introduction to this book, you explain how you chose many of the photos. Um, you include photos of loved ones on their birthdays, photos that related to moments of your life on the days that they happened. But I was also hyper aware of the fact that this book was created during some of the most challenging parts of the pandemic. How did that, if it did, influence some of your choices? Well, it influenced uh, a lot of the choices because I was really in lockdown. Being 73 with a bronchial condition, I was at the top of the list of people that could not go out. <laughs> so I was pretty isolated. And um, it was wonderful to have this project because it gave me, you know, something. I mean, being a traveler, I would have been taking pictures on the road for it. But um, I was limited to the pictures that I had in my phone, boxes of Polaroids, and any picture I could take mostly in my room. So it's, it's, you can almost tell the pandemic pictures because they're always by my bookcase. Mm. There's one of my, a photograph of my husband, carte de visite of uh, Tolstoy, uh, my talisman, Sam Shepard's pocket knife. They were all done in my room at my desk or at my bookcase during the pandemic. So I made the choice to do the book then. And in my solitude, it sort of helped me relive a lot of travel and also go back and forth deep into the past. You've mentioned several times that one of your big goals in putting this book out into the world was wanting to inspire people. So I'd like to ask you, where do you find inspiration now? Oh, I'm, <laughs> I'm easily inspired. I mean, truthfully, I'll, I'll, I'm inspired by films I watch, uh, books that I read, books that I reread. I'm inspired by the work of others, by Greta Thunberg's efforts, by my daughter Jessie's efforts, uh, my son's guitar playing. And uh, I can be inspired by a beautiful meal or a perfect loaf of bread. But um, the work that other people do, and the books they write, and the cathedrals they build, or the forests they save, it just makes life worth living. 
We've been talking with Patty Smith about her book of days. And Patty, we are so grateful that you have spent some time with us. Thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs> You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Avast, a global cybersecurity company with more than 435 million users. Avast is dedicated to helping people take control of their safety and privacy online. Learn more at avast.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system. Designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. And from Total Wine & More, where in-store teams can recommend a bottle of wine, spirit, or beer for any occasion. Learn more at totalwine.com. Spirits not available in Virginia or North Carolina. This is 90.9 WBUR, down around 32 degrees overnight tonight, then tomorrow more sunshine back in the mid-40s. There's a wind advisory in effect until 5 tomorrow morning, covering parts of the Cape and Islands. Barnstable, Dukes, and Nantucket counties could feel winds around 30 miles an hour, some gusts up to 50 miles an hour. They could pull down tree limbs and cause some power outages. Mariners beware, by the way. Strong winds could damage or capsize vessels in Cape Cod Bay southward and northward to Massachusetts Bay and Ipswich Bay and even beyond. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Goddard House in Brookline, an innovative senior community for those seeking meaning, growth, and purpose in each and every day. GoddardHouse.org. I'm WBUR arts and culture reporter Cristela Guerra, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUH-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The DA investigating the deadly LGBTQ nightclub in Colorado Springs is urging patience as the officials determine what happened. Coming up, queer rights groups say they're shocked but not surprised by the attack. This is a direct result of, of the rhetoric that has excused hate. What we have seen on message boards, uh, what we have seen from politicians. I'm Lisa Mullins. That story coming up. Also ahead, the progressive DA movement survived the midterms and attacks by Republican candidates at the state level, but it's having trouble expanding its appeal beyond liberal enclaves. As the 27th UN Climate Change Conference closes, India is in a position to boast. It has installed a record volume of solar power this year in an attempt to wean itself off coal. Also, parents behaving badly at their kids' soccer games and how to get them to act like adults. It's 6.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. The man suspected of carrying out a shooting at a Colorado LGBTQ nightclub that left five people dead and at least 17 others with gunshot wounds remains in police custody. No charges have been officially filed yet, though the 22-year-old suspect is likely to face a litany of charges. Colorado Springs Police Chief Adrian Vasquez identified the victims today. The first person I'll identify is Kelly Loving. Kelly's pronouns are she, her. Daniel Aston. Daniel's pronouns are he, him. Derek Rump. 
Derek prona Derek's pronouns are he, him. Ashley Paw, that's P-A-U-G-H. Ashley's pronouns are she, her. Raymond Green Vance, Raymond's pronouns are he, him. The attack took place Saturday night at Club Q, a go-to spot for the Colorado Springs LGBTQ community. The largest freight rail union has voted down the contract agreement brokered in Washington in September. NPR's Adrian Shu reports the possibility of a strike next. Andrew Shu rather reports the possibility of a strike next month remains on the table. The Smart Transportation Division, representing some 28,000 train conductors, brakemen, and yardmen, voted to reject the contract the Biden administration helped negotiate in September. The deal would have given workers a 24% raise over five years and some quality of life improvements. The railroads called it the most generous contract in modern history, but some workers were not satisfied, noting that the raises barely keep up with inflation and that the deal included no paid sick days. They say the Railroads can afford more given their record profits in recent years. The two parties now return to the bargaining table and have until early December to come to a deal. Andrea Shu, NPR News, Washington. A one to one draw at the World Cup between the U.S. and Wales men's teams today in Qatar. Gareth Bale converting a penalty kick in the 82nd minute to offset the U.S. team's first half goal. NPR's Tom Goldman is Ahmed bin Ali Stadium in Doha. This was a tale of two halves. The U.S. was the aggressor in the first half, and it paid off with a beautiful goal at around the 35-minute mark when star forward Christian Pulisic broke free with the ball and threaded a beautiful lead pass for another forward, Tim Weah, who flicked the ball in with his right foot. The second half was a different story. Wales was the aggressor and spent a good deal of the half in the U.S. end. NPR's Tom Goldman. Disney's new boss is like the old boss, literally the entertainment giant announcing the return of Bob Iger, the executive who brought Star Wars, Pixar, and Marvel to the franchise, while also challenging the streaming dominance of Netflix. On Wall Street, stocks lost ground today. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Investigators have released the name of the man who was killed this morning when an SUV slammed through the front of an Apple store in Hingham. He's identified as 65-year-old Kevin Bradley of New Jersey. At least 16 other people were hurt in the crash, some seriously. Police say they're questioning the driver, who is unnamed. Apple has issued a statement saying the company is devastated by the incident. It says Bradley was on site to support recent construction at the store. The company says it's doing everything it can to support employees and customers affected by the incident. A jury has acquitted a Reading police officer of charges in the fatal shooting of a man in 2018. WBR's Deborah Becker reports on today's verdict. Jurors deliberated for less than a day before finding Officer Eric Drowski not guilty in the shooting of 43-year-old Alan Greeno. When police arrived at Greeno's apartment to investigate a domestic assault, they say Greeno fled to a nearby junkyard. Officer Drowski found him hunched over in a car and said Greeno refused to show his hands and told Drowski to shoot him. Prosecutors argued that Greeno had no weapon and did not threaten the officer. Drowski's been on unpaid leave since he was indicted two years ago. He was the first Massachusetts police officer criminally charged with an on-duty shooting in more than three decades. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Deborah Becker. A vigil is scheduled for tonight at the Brandeis University campus in Waltham. It's to support members of the community after a weekend shuttle bus crash near campus. That crash killed a 25-year-old Brandeis student, Vanessa Mark, and injured nearly 30 other students at Brandeis and other schools. 
Brandeis Counseling Center Director Gilbert Hinga says this has been a difficult time for students. What we've done is we're working with Riverside Trauma Center, who is also providing, in partnership with Brandeis Counseling Center, services to students who have had a, a trauma response to this event. The Middlesex DA's office continues to investigate the crash and says at least one of the passengers has injuries that may be life-threatening. People interested in teaching at child care centers in Boston will soon be able to access free education and training programs. As WBR's Carrie Young reports, the financial supports are part of a new program aimed at easing the industry's labor shortage. The program will be funded by a $7 million allocation of the American Rescue Plan. It will be administered to four institutions in Boston, including colleges, who will provide scholarships and financial assistance to around 800 interested students. City Councilor Kenzie Bach says the one-time funding is an important investment. That will pay dividends not just with those 800 folks, but the idea that other folks around them will look at them and say, oh, that looks like a stable opportunity. Like That looks like something that's actually going to um, compensate me appropriately. Students who access the free training and credentials will be required to work in early education in the city for two to three years. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Carrie Young. The forecast tonight should be about as windy as today was, falling a few degrees to freezing. Tomorrow, highs around the mid-40s, another sunny day. Wednesday, sunny and inching up to the high 40s to 50. It's looking now as if we should have a sunny and dry Thanksgiving day. It's 6.07. WVUR supporters include Yarl and Pamela Moan, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. We've now learned the names of the five people killed by a gunman at a queer nightclub over the weekend in Colorado Springs. Daniel Aston was a trans performer and bartender at Club Q. He was 28 years old. Also killed were Ashley Greenpaw, Derek Rump, Kelly Loving, and Raymond Greenbands. And while we're still learning about the suspect's motivations, this attack did not happen in a vacuum. Over the last year, the U.S. has seen waves of legislation against LGBTQ people. Armed extremists have protested pride events. Politicians have described queer people as groomers and their families as criminals. I talked about it earlier today with Liz Smith, who works with a local organization that's been on the front lines of these fights. Inside Out Youth Services provides resources for queer young people in Colorado Springs, and I started by asking her what the last couple days have been like for her and those who rely on her organization. It has been um, shocking, uh, sadly not surprising. Um, We understand that the rhetoric um, against our community has been ramping up in recent years, months, weeks. And though we're reeling that it happened uh, here in our community, I think we've all been so afraid for such a long time. Um, And this is just a confirmation of worst fears, what hate looks like when it's taken to violence and taken into our communities. Tell me more about that shocking but not surprising feeling, because many people will say there's a difference between rhetoric and actions and passing a law is not the same as picking up a gun and firing it. So why were you not surprised by this? Well, in short, because our community faces so much backlash and we know the direct connection between uh, public attitudes about who we are and violence against us. We've seen hate crimes on the rise. Uh, Last year was the deadliest year on record for transgender folks who were taken by violence. And 
I think all of us as LGBTQ folks living our day-to-day -day lives are aware of the dangers that come from being our authentic selves. And this is a direct result of, of the rhetoric that has excused hate. And these are national trends, but Colorado Springs brings a specific context to this. Your group has described Colorado Springs as having a reputation as a city of hate. You grew up there. Tell us where that reputation came from. Yeah, so in 1992, that was actually two years after Inside Out Youth Services was founded, uh, Colorado passed Amendment 2, which essentially made it uh, illegal to include LGBTQ folks in anti-discrimination protections. The nexus of Amendment 2, where most of the supporters and advocates came from, was Colorado Springs. And we have spent, you know, the last however many years, decades, trying to change not only the reputation, but also the reality of it. Because the reality is, this was not always an accepting and loving community, and you could not always be safely out here. And our reputation has changed, and the reality of it has changed. And we are so much more open and beautiful and loving than we've ever been in my memory of this city. However, uh, just because we have like robust anti-discrimination protections now does not mean that we're protected from discrimination. It just means we have recourse when discrimination happens. And it does still happen. And um, this is an example of when it happens in the worst possible way. Your organization works specifically with queer youth, and we know that LGBTQ young people experience higher rates of homelessness, of self-harm, of substance abuse. So when you layer this threat of physical violence on top of all of that, what do you expect this is going to mean for the population of young people that your organization serves? Our young people are already traumatized, not only because of the pandemic that's taken three years of their lives, not only because they're growing up, you know, diverse and strange and different and beautiful in a world that doesn't accept them for who they are, but because they don't feel safe anywhere. And um, our job as an organization that serves them is to create those safe spaces for them and to hold those spaces for them and with them. And to see the fear in the aftermath of this and the realization that even a place that is built for and by people like them, that that isn't safe, that's heartbreaking uh, because these young people are so brave and powerful and resilient and they shouldn't have to be. And now they are terrified. And as the adults who love and care for them, we're terrified too. So what can you actually say to them when they come to you with these difficult questions, with these fears, with this trauma? And I'm sure you want to give them a sense of security and safety, but the reality is different. It's powerful, I think, for us as adults and for them as youth to understand that we're all grieving and hurting and afraid. But because we're all grieving and hurting and afraid, it means we're together in this and we're not alone. The solutions to these problems are not within reach. Um, they are not easy, but I think they feel a lot uh, closer when we're together. Can you also tell us about the role that Club Q specifically played within your community? Yeah, Club Q has been around for a long time. Uh, I believe 21 years. And uh, it is a staple of the Springs community. Uh, despite our reputation as a city, we actually used to have um, one of the biggest queer nightclubs in Colorado that was hide and seek. 
And after hide and seek closed down, Club Q was kind of the, the last bastion uh, here in the Pikes Peak region. And of course, resources have come and gone and spaces have come and gone, but Club Q is just kind of always there. And I think you kind of take that for granted when you live in a place long enough um, that it has been there and always will be. Liz Smith is with Inside Out Youth Services in Colorado Springs. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. There's a movement that made it through this year's midterm elections despite political attacks. That's the push to support prosecutors who call themselves progressive and try to reduce incarceration by prosecuting fewer people. Many Republican candidates had blamed progressive prosecutors for rising crime, but as NPR's Martin Costi reports, the movement mostly held its ground. It's a bright morning in downtown Seattle, a couple of days after the election, and a man squats on the sidewalk outside the county courthouse to smoke a crushed pill off a strip of tinfoil. The fact that he can do this here without fear of prosecution is due in part to policies pioneered by the man whose office is up on the fourth floor, the county prosecuting attorney, Dan Satterberg. Fundamentally, the power that a prosecutor has to make a difference is in prosecutorial discretion. The discretion that we inherently have as separately elected executive branch agencies with finite resources, we can decide what our priorities are. And his priorities do not include charging people for drug possession, something Satterberg sees as doing more harm than good. Washington state courts and the legislature have followed his lead on this in the last few years, and he says now, even if he wanted to prosecute low-level offenders, the post-pandemic surge in violent crime has made that impractical. I'm here to tell you the court is full. If we were ever a path to treatment, we're not now. That goes for people with drug addictions, that goes for people who've just fallen into the wrong crowd or need a little bit of a kick in the butt toward a more positive outcome in their life. He knows people are sometimes frustrated by the disorder they see in the streets, but he says you can't blame social problems on the prosecutor. You need to look at the whole community for solutions. It's an attitude that voters here continue to endorse. Satterberg is retiring, but another progressive prosecutor from his staff has just been elected to succeed him. What we saw in 2022 were communities doubling down on the desire for change. Miriam Krinsky runs Fair and Just Prosecution. It's a kind of national club for DAs who identify with the progressive prosecutor philosophy. After this election, that club has grown to about 28 members. Leaders who ran on an agenda of wanting to right-size the criminal legal system, of wanting to avoid criminalizing people who are suffering. I'd be misleading you if I didn't say that we were, uh, you know, a little disappointed. Jason Johnson is president of the Law Enforcement Legal Defense Fund, a group opposed to the progressive prosecutors. He acknowledges their ability to get reelected by liberal voters in big cities. But he sees some hope for his side in the fact that Republican Lee Zeldin came close to winning the governor's race in New York with a campaign promise to fire the progressive DA in Manhattan. Although he didn't prevail, I think there probably is a message there that in, in many parts of New York that people would like to see more of a traditional approach to criminal justice. And the progressive prosecutors did see some setbacks in 2022, chief among them the successful recall of San Francisco's DA Chesa Boudin in June. They've also had trouble expanding beyond big cities or other pockets of liberal voters. In Massachusetts, Plymouth County, a progressive challenger failed to unseat longtime DA Tim Cruz. 
Cruz says his voters are not interested in what he calls turnstile justice. It's just really dangerous. Uh, you know, you have to hold people accountable. Still, even traditional DAs like Cruz have come to share some of this movement's aims. I am not uh, a progressive DA, but I think that I am progressive. Don't we really all want the same thing? Don't we want to have a just society? Don't we want to make sure that people are held accountable when they do something, they hurt somebody? But at the same time, how do you make sure that the mistakes that they've made don't parlay into something bigger than what they originally were? And how can you help those kids stay out of the system? Beyond political labels, there has been a growing willingness by prosecutors of all political stripes to back the broader goal of reducing America's incarceration rate. And incarceration numbers have been slowly falling. But in Seattle, Satterberg is already thinking about the next round of elections, saying the continuing re-election of these progressive prosecutors is what will determine whether this is a moment or a movement. Martin Costi, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on WBUR's All Things Considered, how to get misbehaving parents at their kids' soccer games to act their age, not their shoe size. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square with cooking and baking workshops, technique and regional cuisine series, and cooking couples classes, cambridgeculinary.com. The holiday week on Wall Street began on the downside. The Dow lost a little more than a tenth of a percent, 45 points. It closed at 33,700. S&P was down about four-tenths of a percent to finish at 39.50. The Nasdaq was down more than one percent to end the session at 11,025. The Massachusetts Biotechnology Council is helping to launch a workforce training center at the former Boston Globe building in Dorchester. The Mass Bio Training Center will offer three short-term certificate training programs for free, designed to help people launch careers in life sciences. The center will provide a stipend to offset trainees' lost income. The facility is expected to open by the end of the year. It's 6.20. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet, committed to delivering Internet service over a gig, designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at Xfinity.com gig. And Gore Place. Find handmade gifts at its holiday boutique with special Thanksgiving weekend shopping hours, Saturday and Sunday from 10 to 3. Goreplace.org. Our cold wind from today shouldn't let up tonight. Clouds moving in. They should dissipate by dawn. Lots of high winds. Overnight lows about freezing. Tomorrow should rise to about 47 degrees. As winds recede, the sunshine should stick around for another day. Wednesday could also be sunny, milder, reaching possibly 50 degrees. As of now, Thanksgiving Day is looking sunny. Highs back in the mid-40s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Naturals, with over 300 bulk items, including culinary spices, medicinal herbs, and household staples. CambridgeNaturals.com. It's All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. The COP27 Climate Summit wrapped up on Sunday with a historic deal to compensate developing countries hit hard by a warming planet. One recipient of that aid will be India, which is scrambling for more renewable energy sources. This year, the country installed a record amount of solar power, as NPR's Lauren Freyer reports. 
How many stories is this building? This is 27. 27. So we're climbing up a ladder now, up onto the top of the roof. Quite a view. Wow, you can see the mountains. So that is what is known as the Thane Creek. Body of water in the distance. It's yeah. not just the mountains that are impressive, though. It's the view before them of thousands of rooftop solar panels. So you see most of the buildings, you can see that that building has solar. So just a few years ago, these weren't here. No, not at all. Chinmay Divekar is a solar entrepreneur who's part of this change. His business partner is Jai Vyas, an accountant who in his 60s has become a solar evangelist. Before our interview, he sent me a pamphlet he wrote entitled, Sunny Makes Money. When I wake up in the morning and uh, I have committed myself to speak about solar to at least three people every day. You are one of them today. Until recently, though, it was a tough sell. Despite having lots of tropical sunshine, about 70% of India's electricity comes from coal. Renewables mostly mean massive solar plants in the deserts of Rajasthan or Gujarat. Or farmers using a panel or two to run irrigation pumps in rural areas where the grid is shaky. But solar never really caught on in urban India. The government subsidizes electricity, so it's cheaper here than in the West. And most solar panels are imported and expensive not worth it for any single household. But that's changing, with record government investment in renewables this year, says energy economist Vibhuti Garg. Players who want to set up solar rooftop can register themselves. They'll get government subsidies. Government subsidies for domestic solar panel production. That's what neighboring China did to make its own solar industry so successful. Jai and Shinmei used to import rather expensive solar panels from Singapore or Germany. Now they're using Indian ones. So these are Indian made? Uh, these are Indian made uh, panels. Uh, these are, this is our latest installation. It says Renusis India Private Limited. Jai shows me his latest installation atop a big condo complex on Mumbai's northeast outskirts. The building manager is Swati Nevki. As the prices of panels fell, her building's residents took a gamble on solar. Brookhill Society invested uh, 1.4 million rupees. So that's to buy the, the panels themselves and install them. Panels, entire project. In year 2020, we have got uh, half a million recovery savings. So that's within less than three years, the investment is, investment is recovered. They recouped their investment with lower energy bills. But there's a catch. These new domestic panels aren't totally domestic, Shinmei says. So basically the silicon that goes inside, that's still in, imported from China. And that is subject to price fluctuation, so many other factors. Some components still need to be imported. Correct. But now there are huge manufacturing capacities being set up by, I don't know if you know these two groups, Adani and Ambani. And Who uh, hasn't uh, heard yeah, those two names yeah, yeah. in India? Yeah. Two of India's biggest conglomerates are getting government help to onshore the entire Indian solar panel supply chain. And if that happens, prices may come down even more. In the next 10 years, economists say solar may become India's cheapest energy source. Lauren Freyer, NPR News, on a rooftop in Mumbai. When the stakes are high in sports, so is the volume and passion in the stands. But some say fans of kids sports have lost perspective. NPR's Elizabeth Blair reports. Parents and coaches yell at the refs. They yell at the kids. You gotta see the offsides. And they yell at each other. 
what kinds of adult misbehaviors have you seen on the sidelines in youth soccer? Well, first off, let's not call them adults, okay? Brian Barlow is a longtime collegiate soccer referee who started the Facebook page Offside, where you can find dozens of videos of adults losing it at youth sports games. An adult is rational. An adult is responsible. An adult understands that it's no longer their moment, it's their child's moment. With some 95,000 followers, Offside is like a cone of shame for adults who are abusive to refs. Sideline behavior has gotten so bad, there's a national referee shortage. They're making 25 to 45 to $50 for 50 minutes to an hour and 10 minute match. And in that time, the coaches and the parents are over the top disrespectful. So we never get a chance to really mold these officials because they're like, I don't want that 50 bucks. I'll go flip a burger. And for kids, it's mortifying. 15-year-old Joshua Nimley has been playing competitive soccer in Washington, D.C. since he was six years old. Yeah, I've had my fair share of incidents. I remember, like, there was one time I was, like, eight, and, like, parents, they almost had a fight because, like, they didn't agree with the decision. And it was just, it was just BS. It shouldn't be that serious. It's crazy. And what were the players doing? What were you in the... We were just all surprised because, like, we weren't arguing about it, like, as kids, so why, why are adults doing this, you know? One reason, too much focus on winning, says Sky Eddy, a former professional soccer player. She's also a parent and a coach. Sometimes parents care too much about the result, and so they then get too involved in what's happening and don't let the game sort of belong to the child, if you will. To help parents behave better during games, Eddie designed a 15-minute video course. But here's the thing. She doesn't focus on hostile behavior, but something that's much more prevalent. Distracting behavior is communicating to a player while they're in the middle of trying to perform a task or while they're in the middle of trying to think and be aware and make a decision on the field. In the video, she asks parents to look at a slide with the names of different colors. She asks you to say out loud, not the words as written, but the colors they're written in. It's tricky because the colors don't match the words. Eddie coaches you while you're reading it. I tried it. Begin. Blue, Keep red, going. purple, blue. Faster. Yellow, blue. We think we're helping oftentimes, but in fact, we're distracting players from learning. But keeping quiet is challenging for parents. There's another exercise called silent soccer, where adults agree not to say anything during their kid's game. DC parent Petrina Whitney has done it. That was really, really hard, really hard. We did it probably a couple weeks ago, probably four weeks ago, and it was really hard, but we did it. These efforts do seem to be working. Eddie says of the 9,000 people who've taken her course, 60% say their sideline behavior is better. Most excitingly to me, over 40% of parents who take the course say that their relationship with their child improved as a result of taking just this 15-minute course where we're finally, you know, stepping in and educating parents and giving them some moments to reflect and some guidance about how children learn and how sport is learned. The kids don't want to hear their parents. They don't want to be coached by their parents. They want to please their parents. Brian Barlow. And the most powerful thing that you can say to your young athlete at the end of the game, it isn't what you did right, what you did wrong, how you're going to play better next game. It's just to walk to the car, get in the car and say, hey, I loved watching you play today. Elizabeth Blair, NPR News.
This is NPR News. Hi, it's Robin Young. As you give your year-end contributions to organizations that make the world a better place, how about putting WBUR on your list? Give a gift of cash or stock or a contribution from your donor-advised fund. Even your old car can help fuel the journalism that keeps us all moving forward. Learn about all the ways to support WBUR and choose the one that's right for you, please, at WBUR.org. 